Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, I'm going to be hosting. I'm Jess. Yay, cheers. Hi, Jess. Hey, hey what's Jess. up? So uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool episode. We've been talking about it for a while. A bunch of us, uh, a bunch of us over, uh, over on the editorial side, and also hashing it out over months of uh, therapeutic ranting in the Discord. So today it's going to be it's going to be me and uh, Philip hosting. Philip, say hi. What up? Yeah, and we have a couple of uh, very distinguished guests and contributors to the pod. So, uh, so uh, Arnav, so they're both recruiting hey guests. So, Arnav, hey, what's up? Hey, what's and up, guys? Mike. Hey, I'm Mike. How you doing? Yeah, so Arnie's done a couple of pods for us uh, on uh, over on the unverified account side, uh, and I think you've you've been on the you've been on a previous tech pod too, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, I think I've been on a couple of previous tech pods. Uh yeah. like Philip, there was a the one we did with Teen about uh whether or not uh, being a clean like a climate tech or clean tech entrepreneur is worth it. Uh I'm in that space, so I said yes. <laughs> and uh, I think there was one more I think there were a couple more tech pods as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, the one we did with uh with Bless you. Bless you. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we had one with Mike uh, that the Justice was beyond last time, mm-hmm. um, but just going to yeah, make yeah. it around, um, you know, alternative work, basically, right? Alternatives to mm-hmm. the grind. Um, yeah, cause... Mike's been on one before that too. Mm-hmm. Um, general entrepreneurship, but this one. So we're gonna. T- so as you can tell, it's a pretty tech-heavy uh, lineup we've got here. So that should be no surprise. What we're going to be talking about is. Uh, um, Getting into the weeds on the myths of entrepreneurship, specifically in tech, in the tech industry, and breaking breaking all of that down and kind of um, laying out what we think people should actually know and not, you know, the not the uh, misinformation, shall we say, that's that's floating <laughs> out there uh, on the subject. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll link all the our guests' previous pods in the show notes too. So please go check those out. They, they are, they are, they have been immensely informative for me and to, and I know to you, to a lot of you guys as well. So let's get this started. Okay. So, um, I wanted to set this up as, uh, just laying out some common myths that I've seen floating around being, in, uh, surrounding the, uh, you know, what, entrepreneurship in tech specifically is so um i'll just i'll just start um i got the i got the impression that a lot of times people see uh entrepreneurship as kind of as easier actually and more glamorous than just pulling a nine to five with a salary um, this is a pretty. This is a pretty bad one, I think, because it implies a lot of things about work-life balance, uh, about uh, you know, about uh, the kind of lifestyle that you are going to be able to enjoy living the life. Um, and I feel like it sets people up to have a very, very skewed impression of what life on uh, the, what daily life is actually going to is actually like. So yeah, I, I'll turn I it think, over to you guys. I think this one is probably the most common one that you come across, especially in social media, like Twitter, and like Facebook hustle culture. Um, and it's like, oh, you don't like your boss or, or what? I mean, the, the old trope is if you don't like your boss, you know, you can just be your own boss. But what that really means is you have uh, multiple bosses, right? Like you have five bosses, yeah. 10 bosses, 100 bosses. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's just a different, 
I mean, because work is all about ultimately doing doing stuff for other people in some form or fashion, right? So it's it's just yeah, the, the most common and probably most misunderstood um, aspect of, of running running your own thing. You're saying like, cause you know the the way they paint it is always like you're doing it for yourself as opposed to doing it for somebody. But Mike, you're saying no, you're still doing it for somebody else. But it's gonna, they're going to be like maybe a more extreme relationship, like an investor or a yeah. client, right? As opposed to just like you know a client, but you're just an, a cog in the wheel. You don't give a shit about how things work out for that client. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like drawing a paycheck is probably the most like it's just the simplest. Like, uh, what's the word? Um, form of employment. Yeah, form of employment or, or form of doing work, right? I mean, unless you're um, I mean, I can't even think of an example where this doesn't hold true, but you're ultimately, you know, you're, you're, you're doing work for somebody out there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you're, you're going to be accountable to somebody. Uh, and yeah, it's, it just gets more complicated, but people think it's like, oh, you just wake up whenever you want and, you know, do, do things on your own time. And you know that that's called unemployment. That's that's not. <laughs> that, you know, yeah, <laughs> that 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 isn't oh, yeah. uh, entrepreneurship. I think we got to qualify just the word you use easier, right? Than traditional work. It's easier. It, it, I I don't know if they sell it as easier. Like they do sell it as you know the hustle. You're working hard, but you're working hard for a better purpose. You're working hard for yourself. You know you get to keep the profits. That kind of thing. You know, the hours are long. They, they do admit that. When they say easier, it is some of the things that we just brought up. Like, it's easier in the sense that you don't have to deal with, like, a shitty boss, you know, allegedly, right? Except for what Mike just said. Um, it's easy. The way they paint it as easier is that you have a more flexible schedule, right? Which can be true, but also cannot be true, right? It doesn't matter how flexible your schedule is. You got to put in 12 hours a day rather than eight, you know? Um, so it, it, it's not just a straight, straightforward, it's easier because it's fewer hours of work or the work is less like taxing or whatever, right? Except for maybe those cases where, you know, that pod we did Jess about that person who just hires a Filipino executive <laughs> assistant, yeah, they, they outsource everything. Maybe in that case it's easier, but then you got some other shit going on. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a bit of a, um, a conflation here too. Like I think a, a lot, like there's actually like a tech startup, right? Like that's where there's engineering. There's a, there's a lot of, there's, um, there's a bit of obfuscation, I think. And I think a lot of it's lifestyle entrepreneurs and like the, the drop shipping guys, um, mm-hmm. who have like entire brand presence is based on being an entrepreneur, but that's right. the product they're selling. They're, they're not actually selling a product so much as they're selling their th- themselves as the pro as their product. Yeah. Right? So like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're, so it's a brief uh, the, the stint thing, as like, yeah, it's a, it's a brief stint maybe as an entrepreneur selling actual shit. Like, uh, like, like, I don't know. Our, the plan A example is drop shipping wine racks on Amazon. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, I actually heard that someone gave a talk and then in the talk about drop shipping wine racks on Amazon. I was like, do you listen to us? I think you listen to us. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the I mean is, so it's stuff like that, or do- it's like these days it's like day trading or trading crypto or trading NFTs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of like, you know, pitched as the, Hey, you're uh, taking part in this new cutting edge tech revolution that it's going to make that is for once going to make you someone with uh, basically pretty minimal technical skills or like technical skills that are good enough to you know mine the latest shit coin but uh, not necessarily good enough to you know go start an actual software engineering business or something like that right 
So, yeah, and the prior uh, iteration to that would be like <clears throat> like a social media startup or something. Right. Yeah, like or like building like you know like the next big app or becoming an influencer mm-hmm. and you know sell and you know selling like you know like colon like colon cleansing powder or some shit like that. <laughs> uh, getting yeah. a deal like do stuff like that. So uh, yeah, it's basically I think the I think the dream that's often sold of entrepreneurship is one where. Uh, you can live the glamorous lifestyle that uh, you know self that people who put entrepreneur in their bio live on social media and often they what they don't tell you because and i have a lot of friends like this like you know from my circle in bombay is that a lot of those people aren't exactly you know entrepreneurs who started off from where uh, who started from the bottom or anything like that right they're usually people who came from a decent amount of family money and could theoretically never have to work a day in their life Mm-hmm. but uh, you know put the you know like say they're you know doing something entrepreneurial uh, and the reality is that it's probably not going to be uh, immensely profitable if it's profitable at all would basically do it to you know like maintain appearances maintain a reputation that kind of thing right. and uh, the average person doesn't realize this because uh, it's just not you know it's just so far out of the uh, it's just so far out of the average person's wheel wheelhouse right like uh, you see a guy saying hey i'm an entrepreneur i do like curated travel experiences for pet chihuahuas or something uh people are like oh you know that's cute that's uh you know it's a cool business you started that's so great and you know behind the hood behind the hood it's like there's nothing really happening but it doesn't matter if something happens or not as long as the appearance of something happening is kept up yeah and i, I would say that um the, the people who are kind of in this social media slash hustle culture grift a lot of them actually did do some kind of business. And the, the thing is about, in my opinion, the thing is about small businesses, you've learned so much in like a year or a year and a half that you, you know, it feels like you have some kind of deep insight into like, you know, how things work. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you can, but, but, but it becomes very difficult too. So like, I, I think a lot of these folks, you know, do, do some kind of business that is somewhat profitable for a little bit of time and then like kind of pivot into uh, the hustle grift. Um, yeah. Because they feel Which like is, it's they, not selling, it's not selling a product. It's selling entrepreneurship as yeah. the product to right. other people. So by that point, it, there's already a vested interest in making this uh, in kind of uh, hiding, blurring out the more uncomfortable or ugly details about this, because the thing that you're selling is you're trying to get more people on board. You're trying to get more people to buy into that. So right. why would you try to, why would you try to give them information that would, maybe discourage them discourage them. Yeah, exactly. mm-hmm. like if, if you you know if you if you start up a small business and like you do the most basic thing uh setting up a, a merchant bank account and like a credit card processor you feel like you've unlocked the code to like you know to like how business works or something dude and, that sounds simple but let me tell you that is so yeah, exactly. it's, you, it's you do easy. feel accomplished after yeah, after it, that i mean it, yeah. it takes weeks of work and months of preparation but Mm-hmm. Like that's more than ninety nine point nine nine percent of the population has ever done. So it's yeah. yeah. And so you're saying you you then feel the need to because you discovered all this value, you feel the need to repackage that value and sell it. And it's very trendy now to be a you know entrepreneur influencer. Right. And so you you get into that grift. That's what you're saying. I, I think so. I think a lot of them fall into it um, because yeah. that doing that I can almost guarantee you doing that is better than actual running actually running. Yeah. services or products business right like it's more I mean, glamorous it's, for sure if you start to make money on it yeah yeah the social media is just set up for you to just start doing it right like yeah. if you 
especially if you like being in front of a camera, like you're, you know. Yeah, especially but, if you're, and especially if you're attractive, I think that helps as well. But. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. also unfalsifiable. If you have an actual product that you're selling, uh, that kind of speaks for itself, right? Uh, you can you can you can validate the product on its own merits, right? Um, mm -hmm. If you're selling entrepreneurship as a as a soft product, it's pretty hard to to call that out because if you say like, look, I followed your advice, and it it you know I it was shit, right? My I, you ruined my life basically. <laughs> you know, it's pretty easy to say, well, you just did it wrong. That's that's a you problem, not a right. me problem. Yeah, so it's a very it easy. It's a very it's a it's a very uh, seductive product to sell. I think I would love to because it would be so much easier to just say no. The customer is it, that you're the problem here, not me. I don't have to do shit here. Watch mm -hmm. me drink a latte. Right. Yeah. On a beach. Uh, yeah. But to be fair, like we're we're all saying that I think there's both of them exist. I think there are people who like run a business and then have a you know side hustle of mm -hmm. posting on social media about their business because there's kind of like synergies between the two of them right um and yeah. they can make a bit of money mm -hmm. on the side you know yeah. with their the marketing Venn diagram is very yes. wide that's right but then there's also what arnav was saying right was that there's some people who are like are are fine already like they're they have enough you know funding themselves that they can just do the second part just do the meta part right and make that their entire business yeah, or or like uh, what ends up being pretty common is that they they actually have a business, right? It's just not a business that they take particularly seriously, or is uh, necessarily going to be as profitable as or as hyped up or as uh, or, is it, or even like you know going to command the influence that people perceive it might, right? Right, and uh, yeah. At that point, you know, the business itself can be like whatever it can be out. A lot of it can be outsourced, mm -hmm. but the, uh, the, the social media part of it is what basically gives you the cloud. It gives you the, it gives you the, uh, reason for starting and trying, trying to scale that business in the first place. Right now, this could be something like, uh, shit, I don't know, uh, making cactus leather handbags, just as a random example, right? Like now that could be mm -hmm. a totally legit business. Not a venture backable one. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. Uh, but and we should and I think we should, I think that's on the outline to talk about later as well. But uh, that can be a legit business, right? The thing is, mm -hmm. if you're doing that, uh, you know, the thing is, if you're doing that, if you're kind of like crafting a whole story around around it, where it becomes you know it kind of becomes consumed by its own branding or marketing, then that's basically uh, in that kind of situation. You know, the chances are that the person running that doesn't need a doesn't really need that business to succeed. And uh, you see this in tech to an extent as well. I think a lot of like random crypto, uh, like a lot of like random crypto, like coins end up being like that. And that turns out that actually has real, uh, like real world consequences for people who are like suckered into it. But uh, yeah, I think that's something that people need to realize, right? Because the, uh, you know, the, whole like promise of entrepreneurship isn't just that you're going to live a certain lifestyle, but also that you can maybe build up wealth in a certain way. Yeah. And, yes. uh, I think the nuance that people tend to miss there is that this is never like an eight mile kind of situation where, you know, you're M you're, uh, you know, like B rabbit or whatever, whatever Eminem's character is. And you're like, you know, at this final rap battle, final challenge, you know, final shark tank pinch, what pitch, whatever. And, you know, that's your one up. That's, you know, that single opportunity is going to change it. The, the reality of the situation is that uh, 
being entrepreneurship requires a certain amount of risk tolerance and that's not just mental but it's also a physical and material risk tolerance right the amount of cash you mm-hmm. have in your bank account that gives you one way to start a business is like the best example obviously and uh you know if you have a little bit of that cushion already from the get go then it's easier to multiply that whereas if you don't have that and frankly in the current environment a lot of people don't have that uh you know you're just not going to be able to convert that into a uh, into like some amount of wealth that can sustain your life that can just sustain your lifestyle let alone make you fabulously wealthy so i think that is the uh, i think that's the uh, that's a gap that i think people have that the conversation around hustle culture and all of that usually uh, skips over but it's a very important one yeah it's the safety net aspect of, mm-hmm. of going out on your own yeah so i think uh, that tees us up for the second point here <clears throat> Like Arnie, like you're you're talking about risk, um, the level of risk required to take that plunge, uh, and you're and I definitely see the rhetoric around it, um, glossing over just how much risk is involved again by using the that hustle and grind. Um, that value um, of mm-hmm. hustling and grinding it out uh, to kind of cover up talking about risk because it's very real, right? It's really yep. expensive, especially if you live uh, if you if you live in the United States or something like like you know the rent doesn't stop just because you know you decided to go become an entrepreneur, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and for all these people who like to talk about wealth, they don't like to talk about money or expenses, like how much. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't need to know how much money you necessarily made after five years in the business or whatever. Yeah. I do kind of want to know what your first six months was like. Yeah, that's something that that's information that I didn't even know to look for when I was trying right. to decide to make the plunge. That would have made mm-hmm. a, a lot of difference. It would have made my life a lot easier if these people were willing to be honest about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, most people yep. never experience like hugely negative cash flow ever, mm-hmm. right? and that's that's. <laughs> yeah very possible in your first six months to a year um, is that you're not actually making any revenues, um, but you're just writing checks. You're burning or cash. Yeah, you're oh, yeah. burning mm-hmm. money. Yeah, sure. depending on yeah. your business, and 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 I I think it's going to be true pretty much across the board. Um, it takes a lot of capital to to take to to get in, to get into it. Um, we can we can go into it a little bit later, but I think a lot of the entrepreneurship lifestyle people gloss over just how much you like capital you need, not just money but skill, right? And yep. in tech, we've been we've been guilty of lionizing the twenty two year old garage startup guy mm-hmm. for a long time. What the hell do you know at twenty two that gets you set up to run a business? Yeah, nothing. Nothing, <laughs> yeah, right? So capital so either is it, you're either going to have to pay for it or you're going to have to know it. Uh, or you have to like, be the, the right person who can easily drum up a whatever ten mil series right. A, so you can actually yeah, yeah and like also right. and also like you know have the like have the you know the single minded focus to uh, learn all the nuances of uh, you know doing like bullshit like payroll like setting up payroll for example right. or yeah uh, <laughs> yeah figuring out how to like how to vet a bunch of contractors in Latvia or or wherever you're gonna like outsource right. your engineering yeah. to uh, and- yeah. You know, like talk to cut like customers like twice your age, that kind of shit. Yeah, and to, and to be fair, I think, um, and I think this is in the outline later on down the road. But um, a lot of the stuff has been streamlined for new entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. like the entire like HR stack and uh, accounting stack and all that stuff has been standardized. Oh yeah. Um, so you kind I, of I can I can describe that like right system. now because they've they they've like reemphasized it throughout all of these. 
different accelerators or founders right. communities that I've been part of, right? right. Like you um, incorporate yeah, your company on LegalZoom, set up right. payment on Gusto and, you know, go so on and so forth. Yeah, ex- exactly. And, you know, just, yeah, just in general, software as a service is kind of taking over all this stuff. But I mean, that's, but that's also, you know, like they're marketing, somebody out there is marketing all this stuff and they're mm-hmm. making money too. So it's, you know, it's, uh, and they're going to take, they're ha- they'll happily take your money uh, to, do, to do all oh, this. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's, there's somewhat of a, a little bit of an ecosystem around this stuff these days. But mm-hmm. I, yeah, but I mean, the, the main thing is I think when you're like 22 or, or like any, anywhere in your 20s, right? your main advantage is that you just don't know shit. So you don't, you don't think that anything is impossible and you think that, <laughs> that anything is possible. Right. So it's, you know, and, and, and that's, that's kind of a, I don't know what, what you would call that, but that is kind of an advantage also, not just a disadvantage because you, you're not, you're not full of doubt, right. You're just full of self-assurance and, you know, and, mm-hmm. and people like to invest money mm-hmm. in that. Um, especially in the context of a VC portfolio where you would just expect 99 things to go to zero and one thing to go to a billion dollars. Yeah. The mythical unicorn. Yeah. In these fears. Yeah. Uh, but I think, like, it's the fact that um, a lot of entrepreneurs, the, the uh, perception of entrepreneurship and tech entrepreneurship, I guess startup, right? I am splitting entrepreneurship and tech entrepreneurship a little bit here. Mm-hmm. I think they've kind of gotten muddled, especially lately with like crypto, NFT yeah. stuff and all of that. Um, but uh, I think I think there's a lot of entrepreneurship um piggybacks on the accumulated social capital of startup culture to kind of get mm-hmm. a little bit cooler to feel a little bit cooler than they actually are um but that also means that it's people with better branding on their shit that dominates the perception of what entrepreneurship oh, yeah. as a whole in the in the sector is like uh like so i mean i've had friends because i was the only one in my circle who actually took that plunge everyone else um was either building up their prof- you know their professional credentialing you know in like law or medicine or something or were in more traditional like salaried positions i was the only one that did this and they're they'd be they'd they'd be saying all kinds of weird stuff to me they're like oh i mean i'm so jealous of you you can just kind of like do whatever you want and i'm like what <laughs> i've got like seven customers mad at me about seven different things and i yeah. wasn't even aware of like five of them you know uh, and then, yep. you know, they, so a lot of these, like the lifestyle people, they do, you know, it's like, oh, watch me, you know, watch me go through a day planning all my stuff. And then, you know, uh, how I balance like all these organic meals that I'm eating while I'm doing all this stuff. Like, look, <laughs> when I get the call at 3 a.m. that a server fan has blown out, yeah. I'm not turning on Instagram live to go handle that shit. Yeah. That's all I'm yeah. saying. You know, like you don't I, i'm just i'm just pr- gonna say that i'm just gonna say that you know i've seen ads for like stuff like daily harvest where they basically pick like you know like a pretty hot influencer and have the influencer mm-hmm. be like hey uh you know uh i really need to start my day on the right right footing get all the, oh, get all the right nutrients in and like you know that's why i'm drinking this uh pretty disgusting avocado cacao donkey <laughs> ball smoothie uh, and I'm just like, wait, I'm just like thinking internally. I'm like, wait a minute, your job is, you know, you're an influencer, right? Like, no, no, I'm not shitting on influencer work because I know there's like stuff that goes on behind the scenes. But I'm like, your job is to basically like get a bunch of makeup on, get a bunch of branding deals in and like just go, you know, frankly, like look pretty, look good, whatever. And uh, I'm just like, okay, that is a very different one from what you're describing, thing from what you're describing, Jess, which is, uh, you know, waking up in the middle of the night because... 
or like dealing with like angry customer emails or like because your you know server farm is not working or your or you know someone forgot to clear the cache or something like that yeah and yeah uh, <clears throat> yeah that's just that just doesn't fit the uh fit the uh fit the vibe of what people would like to think being an entrepreneur is right and with social media you can you become a personal brand very easily and uh mm-hmm. the personal brand gets conflated with what you're actually produce, producing with what your output is which is why you have these two conver- which is why you kind of have these two converge into what the ideal of the ideal of the entrepreneur is as opposed to the what the ideal of the company or the product ends up being but with that said i think there's there's uh to some extent even this the kind of like very gritty entrepreneurship that jess is describing um even though i think that like you know resetting an aws server is not that gritty <laughs> compared to some other types of work but you know even that kind of those kind of scenarios get romanticized a lot i think um mm-hmm. you know because they get turned into war stories right yeah, well, uh, yeah, because it's all well, dominated yeah. by people who were ultimately successful, right? That's no right. one, no one talks to like the failed startup guy, right? Um, yeah, so well, once I mean, you it, have that cushion of like success behind you, it kind of casts everything that led up to it in a very rosy light. Yeah, yeah, and, and so these days, yeah, all, all the stuff is in the cloud, but you, you still have to deal with software problems. Um, but a I mean, lot it, of them, we is, have our like, software is, is crap. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. But this is also like the last five years, right? That AWS has mm-hmm. gained prominence in Azure and Google Compute and all this stuff. But, you know, like, like what you mentioned, like a server fan has been out. Like I've been, I've been in that situation. <laughs> like you actually have to get up, like, or at least I had to get into my car at three in the morning, yeah. drive down to the data center, log in, or uh, not log in, but uh, check in at the counter, go to your rack and like fiddle, fiddle with you know, expensive computers with lots of power, uh, lo- mm-hmm. lots of electricity all around you. So it's these, these days that's less um, critical unless, of course, you actually work for the cloud, in which case you're doing that all the time. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's a um, I mean, even even but it also depends on what kind of business you're in, right? Like, OK, tech is now abstracted away on software, but like this tornado that just tore through the southern southeastern us like how many how many small businesses had to deal with a fucking tornado that ripped through their office or warehouse or manufacturing plant or whatever like that stuff just comes out of the blue and you know i'm not i'm not saying like a tornado happens every week but that's just an example of something that can happen to a small business at any it's point catastrophic Margins yeah. are tough. Like, uh, like, uh, like I'm in Southern California. Um, blackouts and brownouts are pretty common. Um, sh- stuff gets shut down for because there's a wildfire or something. Um, so yeah, I mean, I remember one year, uh, like all of my stuff was flickering because the temperature was peaking like 110 regularly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all stuff you have to accommodate for. Um, and so there's a there's a little. Um, there's a bit of a uh, um, what's it called obfuscation going on here that all the stuff can be easy because you can just abstract it away like Mike said to the cloud or there's a service that you can you just pay every month and they'll handle it but ultimately all of that sits on bare metal somewhere and all of that right. is subject to physical forces so what you're trading off in convenience you're you're what you're trading for convenience right now you're gonna you're 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 accumulating risk at that point. At some mm-hmm. point, something catastrophic could happen, and this could totally wipe out your your entire business or damage it, and it'll take right. you a long time to rebuild. 
like AWS went down three or four times in December. And then there was, Dude, yeah. there was all these public uh, vulnerabilities that came out. Like when, when you're, when you're running an organization, you, you just have to take, you just have to, <laughs> just have to deal with all of that stuff. Right. And it's, it's not even, and you might not even know if it affects you. If you know, this log 4 J thing, it's like, okay, yeah, we don't use Java, I think, but who's going to know? So you got to go in and find out uh, what exactly is going on in, in your stack. And if you if you don't, somebody out there is going to, you know, get into your systems and, you know, the best case is they just get in and they wreak a little havoc and then they, you know, they leave or whatever. But the worst case scenario is, well, you know, all your, all your, all your data is deleted. You get ransomware. All your financials are leaked. Like it's, it's it's not a good it's not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, you you guys are describing you know there, there's a spectrum right of the kind of like let's call it the hard work spectrum right. Or not describe the kind of like easy influencer. I don't think it's that easy either. But you know that kind of like very rosy outlook and probably much more straightforward work than managing physical server racks right. on the other end of the spectrum of hard work. What I'm saying is that even the hard work part, like all these stories you're telling, right? Mike and Jess, like even those things get uh, mystified. They, they, they turn into the mystique of entrepreneurship. They get told as war stories. They get told as like a, a scar or a badge of honor that you went through. Yeah, and that kind, of, that kind of rhetoric encourages more people to go into it, not understand just how, you know, uh, shocking that whole thing is, right? Like for me, like, I mean, mm-hmm. I have a whole bunch of war stories from my time doing my startup. And one of the, the stories is around, this issue we had with a customer in Chicago. I don't live in Chicago, I live in Toronto. And they had these credit card readers we installed for them that would keep dying because of, later it turns out, static. Because it was dry <laughs> in the winter. And oh so they were God. all just dying on wow. us. And we had to build a square integration overnight, like literally over, I think, one night in a day. Yeah. And get them in because we were opening with them on like the busiest, it was like Black Friday weekend or something like that, right? And like that—that that sounds like an exciting war story. But like, I went through—I still get PTSD thinking about oh, yeah, like sure. that time because I had yeah. to fly to—I had to fly to Chicago like a whole bunch of times um, and like deal with really upset customers and physically like run and like untape and retape, you know, these crazy credit card readers. And, yeah. stuff. and it was just you know, but 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 when I tell that now and when someone retells that, they tell it as a mystified like, you know, this is the hard work, this is the grit that goes into, this is the the grind, right? that goes mm-hmm. into running a business. And I guess Toad is a thing that's like generally positive. Like, hey, you do this, but you get great stories, like party stories out of it. Um, and yeah. and not, not the other part where it's like, that was really rough and we lost a lot of money. And like, it was, well, it you, was a huge customer. We could have, it could have, you know, flopped the company. Yeah. And, and, and not just you lost a bunch of money, but you probably cost them a bunch of money. And oh yeah. And it, you know, that entire situation took probably a year off your life. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely. About it, right? <laughs> I have, I have way more gray hairs than when I started. You know. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. I mean, so the, the 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 common denominator is you are going to have those situations, right? Um. So I I don't mind it when people who are talking about their experiences lay that out and they're real about how hard that is. I think the lesson uh, the lesson from that is. If you take this plunge, you have to have the skills or the knowledge to, to figure out what to do, right? Yeah. If your yep. entire stack is plug and play, you're 23, you have an MBA, you have a whole, quote, tech company, and everything is basically a software, a service, software as a service thing that you've plugged into your stack, 
Um, what are you going to do when one of them goes down? What do you need to do when something needs to get customized? What do you do when you need to scale? Uh, mm-hmm. Right? Are you? What do you do when something goes down so catastrophically you're going to need to find an alternative or your entire company goes under? Right? Yeah, exactly. Like um, it's, it's not enough to just to build the. It. It's not enough to just build the MVP, but uh, how do you, you know, like let's say, let's say, let's say you're trying to do, play the whole, uh, you know, tech VC game, right? And you know, build the next unicorn partly because you want to, partly because your investors won't pick money if you don't. But that's a whole other uh, thing we should talk about as well. Uh, mm. At that stage, you know, there's, uh, you know, at that stage, the image of a startup being a bunch of scrappy college bros uh you know fucking around in their garage or frat house uh suddenly like does it just doesn't make sense and the reason is that uh your college bros probably are not going to be uh seasoned professionals who know how to scale a business put in uh processes to you know put in put in processes go from being uh scrappy to being a little more process driven or formal and also to you know, and that same thing applies to you know a product you're building, right? Like uh, you might have built a great no-code version of the product right now, but uh, you need to get serious mm-hmm. about it the moment you try to scale beyond a few customers or a few users. <clears throat> so, or I uh, guess Facebook is the uh, is is the big hilarious story about that. Uh, Mike, you probably you know this, right? Or um, Philip, you too. Um, uh, so Facebook was one of those uh, dorm stories, right? Where Mark Zuckerberg cobbled it together with a couple of with a couple of his buddies who actually did right. most of the work. But it was written in PHP, the first uh, iteration, like two thousand four. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I remember it, this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so they wrote it in PHP, and they pro- they were not expecting that they probably they were not anticipating the scale at which uh, this thing would grow, right? Um, so it got to a point where it just it was straining the limits of this of uh, of the platform, but they already had so much momentum behind them. Um, Facebook just kind of powered through, uh, just leaned the f in, and just built like a new runtime, uh, developed their own language to support the yeah. the shittiness of their core product at that time. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's almost like they took their tech debt and just refinanced it with even more yeah. expensive tech debt. <laughs> yeah. So that's but that's a sheer power. That's that's a unique story because they just simply had the ability to they had the money and the resources to be able to plow into that, right? Yeah, so and, they and the internal mm-hmm. calculus must have been okay. We can actually just rewrite the 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 underlying runtime versus rewrite the site. And that's yes. going to be faster, <laughs> which is insane yeah. if you think about it. But they were serving yeah. billions at the time, right? So it's like, okay, like, that, like that's, I get it. This is what makes I sense. Get it. Yeah. <laughs> I get the I get the business decision here, and they had the momentum and market share to be able to just do this and be like, okay, we're just going to ram this uh, this Im- this ridiculous quote fix into the system to keep to you know maintain our yeah. Um, to- yeah. Uh, what I mentioned on the chat earlier is I know one of the people that worked on that runtime and dude, they were literally recruiting people off of PHP forums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, the, like back in the day when there were forums and mailing lists, you know, before GitHub and all this stuff, um, they were just, they were just like recruiting. Hey, you people. look like you, you know what you're doing. You want to, yeah. like, <laughs> Hey, you want a job? <laughs> like, you know, and those, <laughs> you know, those people got pretty, pretty, uh, pretty rich off of it. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's just one of those things. You guys ever seen that uh, Buster Keaton, uh, you know, black and white comedian from like the 20s, 30s? Uh, that one uh, movie where he's like on a train, he's like 
he's like kind of like on the front of a tr- like a, a locomotive and he's like building the tracks he's got like a bunch of wood he's like building the tracks in front of the train as it's as it's driving oh, as it's going yeah yeah like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. like i i use like gif yeah. like the gif of that that clip all the time to like express this phenomenon of like when your business has momentum and you just have to keep it going <laughs> You just do all sorts of like crazy shit that may not be the best thing, you know, because because you have no choice. Um, yeah, and, and making those kind of trade offs, making those kind of decisions, and sometimes it's not a good decision. It leads you to like we made some bad decisions early on that we couldn't stop the momentum on. It led to you know devaluation problems, yeah, losing and, customers, right? And I, I think Philip, you, you may be familiar with this because you were in a B two B business as well. But like, you're not just accountable to the customers, and maybe your investors or whoever, but. Um, like sometimes your sales guys, you're accountable to, to them too, right? And I, I say accountable in the, the loosest terms because maybe they sold a bad decision to, to somebody mm-hmm. and you're, you're basically on the hook, like somehow got into the contract or whatever, and you're basically on the hook to deliver that. And you can't just be like, no, we're not going to do this because, <laughs> because that's, a, that's a problem, right? Like your customer is going to be upset. Your own employee is going to be upset their commission is riding on it and, and all sorts of weird dynamics that, that go on. So it's, yeah. yeah, you just have to like, you just have to go with things sometimes. And anyone who's been in a company that has like a sales force selling to other businesses, right. That you're describing Mike, like anyone who's been an entrepreneur in that situation has that story. It just gets, yeah. it just never gets told, right. Never like gets it gets told. told between entrepreneurs. It just never gets told to the general public where they're trying to sell the idea of how glamorous entrepreneurship is. But those are the kinds of, conflicts and decisions and, and bullshit you had to deal with all the yeah. time. It's very frustrating. Yeah, um, I, that's that was me. Um, I got into it. I, I un- vastly underestimated management skills, let's say. I had a bit of chauvinism about this. Uh, like, okay, it's about the product. It's, sales is kind of bullshit. Uh, that's just kind of pulling the wool over people's eyes and scamming them. I'm not into the sales side of this. You know, I'm just a pure, you know, pure tech person. That's what I'm going to stake my name on. But eventually you need to have that, that management layer, right? Managing your customers, clients, incoming people, prospective clients, stuff like that. So yeah. Um, oh, yeah. management is a vastly under under-respected skill yeah because there's so many bad managers right because yeah and so so that means that for me like i didn't develop those skills at all right um so when it when it came when someone came when uh the person who brought the client to me was like we promised them this this and this and like i i don't fucking know how to do that what the hell (laughs) that's not part of this shit at all what what are you saying but there was so it's like okay well i guess we're pivoting and like the client didn't know that i basically pivoted like 30 percent of the business just to accommodate this one like little like the subset of a feature that they had requested for their project here Mm -hmm. right and i just didn't want to say no like one like i had paid i had like you know like rent and payroll had had to rely on this and they were willing to pay so i just did it right but uh, that's that's a, that's mismanagement on my part. There should have been a way for me to both onboard uh, onboard the people who were pitching these services to to clients uh, in a way that's more informed that so that they can make a more. That's my yeah. That's my fault. I, that means that I didn't properly inf- you know teach them uh, what to say to people. It right. was more like yeah, we just yeah just 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 bring me clients and we'll work it out right. And that cost me. Yeah, and that's not something business school teaches either. Like, not not the not the day to day, you know, um, managing of 
anything in the business really, but especially expectations and, and all that stuff, right? Like, um, and, and like I mentioned, you know, there, there's just a ton of shitty managers out there because once you get promoted, uh, you're essentially running a mini business inside of a business. Yes. And even, even if, you, even if it's just a development group, you, you know, you still have a budget, you still have a product to deliver, you still have customers, you still have investors, i.e. your bosses. And, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of people get to that position, uh, and can, and can't deal with it, but they, they just struggle and they, and they do it through sheer force, which is not ideal at all no it's not and it, and it applies it doesn't just apply to uh, tech businesses right so like my uh, this yeah. is something my dad kind of uh, my dad and i talk about a lot because he's uh, he's a pretty technical guy in terms of background but uh, uh like he has a phd in chemical engineering and that kind of thing but he's you know in a market where uh frankly getting the premium for that uh, that level of technical expertise is difficult if not outright impossible right like that's just how shit works in india and so the whole emphasis on, hey, uh, you need to learn how to manage people, how to do sales and sales and marketing, and really, you know, build up that rapport with customers, even in the space he's in, which is uh, around like water and sustainability, and I guess some like chemical stuff right now. Uh, it's still as relevant as it was. And uh, I think that's a part that is often missing and that I think needs to be reiterated. So this should be the stage where we get to... Uh, telling listeners what they need to think about, which is that at the end of the day, you're still building a business, right? You're not building a shiny, shiny new app or a, or necessarily just trading crypto. If you want to trade crypto, that's also like, that also can become a pretty hardcore, pretty hardcore thing. And, uh, something you actually have to invest time and energy into, uh, but that's like a slightly separate thing, right? You're starting a business on your own. You're not going to be sitting on a beach in Bali trying to just dropship point racks you are if you want to scale it up you actually want to build up uh uh you know like build up that kind of wealth that would allow you to retire and like retire easily or just have or even have fuck you money then there is a uh you know there are these you know it like slightly less tangible uh skills around uh, managing people building relationships to sell things to them and you know once you sell it them building up a strong customer relationship so they keep paying you in the future that uh, you that frankly are hard to learn, hard to learn, even if it just seems easy, even if it just seems like it's something, you know, really effortless and, uh, you know, like something that you see in, you know, billions or Wolf of Wall Street is something that seems easy to learn. So that part is, uh, that part is something that uh, people tend to underrate, uh, especially if you have, if you come from the technical or science side, like I did, and uh, my dad did as well. So yeah, it's one of those things that is just, uh, really needs to be emphasized over and over again. At the same time, you can't discount the tech side entirely and be that guy who says, I'll handle the business side because, uh, you know, the you actually have to deliver and be able to execute on what you're promising. If you can't, you're just building vaporware and you'll go the way of something like Theranos. Yeah, very much so. So, I mean, I think you've mentioned a good, a good point there. Um, the It's underemphasized that you're actually building a business. And I think this is the fault, this is fault of VC culture. Because mm-hmm. I don't think in tech it's under it's under reported that how much you're not actually building a business, you're building a product that you are then selling, repackaging and then selling to a VC. 
That's the idea here. Or you're selling it yep. to one of the fan companies, you know, Facebook, Apple, whatever. You're you're not actually building a business. You're actually developing your own big product, your own messy product that you are then hoping to flip to a bigger mm -hmm. company for acquisition. Yep, either to a bigger company really, or you're putting it into, yeah. the, into the public market so the VCs can then, uh, you know, have something liquid and get a return on their investment, right? So uh, yeah, there is a, you know, there is a nuance that, again, there's a nuance that is often missed between uh, a VC valuation and business value. And, you know, often, sometimes, or, you know, a lot of times they are correlated. A lot of times, you know, these are companies that will end up creating a lot of value and get really high valuations and everybody's happy. But there's a lot of times where the incentives don't always align, right? Like uh, the kind of archetypical example is starting a software or like services business that might run in the 10 to $50 million revenue range at its peak, which is, you know, which is great, right? You're going to make career, <laughs> you're like running a 10 to $50 million business is pretty awesome. I think most people would be very happy with that. But uh, that frankly doesn't fit the risk reward profile of uh, venture capital, right? Venture capital is a special form of uh, private equity where they take on more risks by going in earlier and earlier to the start of the business. And at that stage, there's very few hard metrics you can, uh, you know, there's very few hard me metrics you can count on to figure out how healthy of a business it is before you put your money into it. So that a lot of it just moves on networks on signaling you know like where has the founder worked or uh, which school did they go to or uh you know in the kind of like in this meet in the meme that's been going around recently uh whether or not your mom was on the board of ibm or not <laughs> uh yeah shout out was that yeah. was that bill gates or somewhere yeah there we go yeah so uh you know and you know you know whether the vc likes you or not right so those are all the things that vcs tend to over index on those are all risky things to over index on and so they're not going to be satisfied if one out of the 10 companies succeeds and success just means 10 to 50 million dollars because they're, they're just not going to be rewarded for the risk over there and so that's yeah. why they yeah. push certain companies to be unicorns but in doing so they force you to take risks that you might not otherwise would have and you either like go really big or you go home. And for a lot of people, like, you know, you don't need to always go really big, right? Like uh, running a $10 million business, let's say you capture about, I don't know, like 10% uh, of that value, you still get a million dollars a year and you get a nice little house in Tahoe or whatever, wherever you want it. Yeah, I, I, I just want to, um, like, I, I agree with you, Arnie. I just think that there's also this, well, I'm, we're seeing this kind of new, approach with VCs and this is a bit of a tangent so let's let's get off this tangent after I'm done but um, you know Tiger Capital right mm -hmm. you heard of those guys right oh, their yeah, whole motto is to actually go in super early but go in with a ton of data mm -hmm. that they can get on the business the business model the market and so on whatever's being pitched to them and they're so confident in this play that they'll actually come to meetings like the first meeting with you with a term sheet ready to invest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think that, and that that's a whole, that's aggressive. Yeah, I know. It's like a completely different conversation, I think. Um, but mm -hmm. it, it does show that it, it's in that VC world. It's not strict. I, I think it still is about connections because you need to get that connection to Tiger in the first place to have that right. niche. Right. But there's also, you know, crazy new plays around like more, you know, riskier, uh, investments with a lot more data behind yeah. it. So to close out, yeah, so close out this tangent because Tiger, Demisex, SoftBank, all of these new funds play a lot mm -hmm. in India. My mom works in the space. So like we've, so I'm like, 
heard her uh, you know like complain about them a little bit uh basically <laughs> like basically basically their whole playbook is that they're like okay here's a huge market here is a we have a ton of capital that we need to deploy to get these crazy returns we have to yeah yeah but they have mm-hmm. to right because their lps their lps demanded or their or in the case of softbank one of their some one of their lps for uh I think one of their latest funds is literally like you know Muhammad, like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, who are uh, tend to be pretty aggressive when it comes to investing. So they say, you know, fuck it, we need the we need the returns. Here's a big market. Here's you know here's the Amazon of India or the Uber of Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Let's go in there. Let's pick a winner. Let's put as much cash into that winner as possible, and just help them like dominate market share uh, entirely. Uh, and you know they put a lot of money into that. What ends up happening is that a lot of VC, like VCs are, who are you know maybe part of who are like local or maybe uh, have slightly more traditional bents in mind are like this is idiotic. Uh, you know that none of these companies are worth <laughs> this much, and they should not be getting this much capital because they'll scale a lot and not deliver a great product, and then also run into all of the issues that come with it. But uh, they still go along with it, right? And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a whole, uh, you know, that has its own upsides and downsides. There's a whole host of reasons for it happening. But the fundamental reason is the same, which is that uh, there's uh, there's a certain risk-reward ratio in VC, and it only works out if your company is going to become a unicorn. Uh, the way tech companies work is that if you're going to become a unicorn, you probably need to dominate the entire market. You need to become a monopoly or quasi or like oligopoly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's... The, convex- the convexity of the winners just completely wash out all of the losers. It, mm-hmm. it just doesn't even matter. I mean, yeah. I heard that I heard that Tiger Global was doing like a deal a week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is nuts, right? Like, yeah. a, especially at 10, 20, 50 million dollar investments at, you know, 100 million dollar valuations. Like, that's great. Like, and yeah, any traditional VC is going to look at that like, this is nuts. But mm-hmm. they're working at such a scale on a global stage, and they have very aggressive investors. It's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, I, I want I want to end this tangent, and bring it back to the the topic, sure. like the the kind of question we're trying to address, which was like, as an entrepreneur, you should kind of go in knowing what you want to do, like how big of a splash you you can tolerate making. What's your risk profile, as we we're saying, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the advice that I I would give to people, I've given to people, is like, you should talk about what your exit is like what the realistic exit is. And I think a lot of people don't yep. do that. I think they go in because they see the glamour behind it and they have an idea and they have, you know, whatever enough sufficient backing from connections or savings or whatever it is to do. And they just go and do it without really thinking about what the outcome is going to be. Right. The most they may or think about is like, I want to, sorry, that? That, uh, I'll let you finish, but yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I think the, the most of what they might do is they may decide if it's like, going to be vc back and they want to pitch vcs or if it's going to be lifestyle i don't think they think much more beyond that and like the you know what what you know arnie was bringing up around like hey maybe 10 mil and like 10 percent of 10 mil is great and and you should shoot for that and do a great job and have a good time a stable time right yeah um, i mean i i think part of, I'm, I'm guilty of this is we, oh, well, i have no idea what the exit was going to look like when i started um but i i think part of that is just when you're at zero like any kind of outcome just seems so distant that you don't really think about it, right? Like, you know, even if you sell your business for $1 million, you're just like, well, I'm at zero. Like 1 million is the same as Sounds great, yeah. to me. <laughs> like what, what's the difference? Like, I don't know. Yeah. That, and, even, and, and that's yeah. the reason why it doesn't happen. What I'm saying, and I'm not saying you need to accurately guess what the outcome is. I'm just saying like, go through the exercise of thinking about it and see how it makes you and your 
co-founder and your, you know, your spouse or family, girlfriend, whoever, yeah. how they feel well, about I, I think, embarking on that. And then that will help you help guide you a bit. Yeah. I think, well, I think this is one of the, the huge differences between a serial entrepreneur and, and, and somebody who's just doing their first one, right? Like once you've been through the process, whatever that process is, Mm-hmm. The second time around, you just know way more, like magnitudes oh, yeah. more about what the actual outcomes could possibly be. And then you can kind of guide yourself towards one. But yeah, uh, yeah. But the first time around, you're just like, well, I don't know. Yeah. You're, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, the system kind of incentivizes you to not think about that too, or uh, keep it so, so, um, uh, pie in the sky, like the potential would be like, uh, like I don't know, becoming a billionaire, right? Um, yeah. That you're incentivized to not even think about. It. I think this uh, it, this encourages entrepreneurs, especially young ones who are sus- more susceptible to this kind of messaging, to kind of burn your way deep into the red, so that any level of bailout, whether it's a sale or VC funding or something, is kind of a is is kind of uh, a success story, right? Like, uh, like I've, I've seen it repeated a lot that, you know, you, you have to grind, you have to hustle. There's going to be a period of hardship. Uh, it's, that's glossed over, but what they, what they, what I've seen happen over and over again is people run very, very deep into debt or rack up immense levels of, uh, like, yeah, they're just, they're just in the red. So when, uh, when, yeah. uh, when, when they get investment, they're willing to sign over huge parts of their company in exchange for that bit of funding. And th- now they're completely beholden to the vision of their investors to deliver on it just because they just, they, they bought into the, they bought into the myth. They did it. They fulfilled on it. I would say they hustled. They, they were willing to sacrifice. Uh, they put their, you know, they put their houses, they got another mortgage on the house or something. Right. Right. And then this, this, uh, in, and then they did what they did. And then when a little bit of money came to invest, th- that was the success story for them. Uh, that's a bit predatory. That's, that's yeah, one, something you got to work, watch out for. One example of this is, uh, box, not Dropbox, but just box. And they basically did the same thing except for, uh, B2B. And oh, I remember I think, them. This was yeah, a while. This yeah. was a while ago. Um, and the, the founder, when they went IPO, I think he ended up with like a fraction of a percent of the equity or something like that. So, you know, that from guy. dilution. Yeah. From dilution and, you know, just more rounds of funding and, you know, mm-hmm. all the way up mm-hmm. until the investment banks took them, took them public. It wasn't, it wasn't one of these direct listings or, you know, one of these exotic IPOs. It was just a straight IPO where like Wall Street mm-hmm. just took them to the cleaners and all the early, early VC people got, got their money, but the founder, I mean, look, like, it's not like he's poor or anything, but he, he got a fraction of what he deserved. And I, th- I think it was literally less than 1% of the equity when they, when they went IPO. So, yeah. That, that happens when you burned your way deep into the red and you just, you're, the money that you bring in is basically just enough to barely keep the lights on. And you're always kind of, you're yeah. always, you're never in the black. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another that's and that's another myth that I wanted to. Uh, we should flip to the next sorry, side, but the last point that I had is the idea that money comes easy when you're in this entrepreneurship or tech startup space. Um, that's probably the most insidious one. Like we only we only really hear about the uh, like like the Facebook IPO where billionaires get made overnight. Right. right. Or in like common, even in common tech reporting, like the way that, the breathless way that series A or B's are announced, 
uh, makes it seem like that's actually the end goal, not actually building a business or having a product or or anything. Like that money is treated as actual wealth. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, like all these, like, uh, like all these startups are like, wow, they scored like a three hundred million dollar Series A or something. Congratulations! And like, that's not money in their pocket. Yeah, there. that's that's not a reason to celebrate. Not really. Yeah. Um, so the idea then is like, and, and I, and I have to believe that this is an intentional, intentionally propagated misunderstanding as part of the myth, right? That you, you hustle, you grind, you make that sacrifice. And then, you know, at the end of the day, the, a VC is going to reward you with uh, $300 million or something. I'm like, that's it. That's the success story. And not like the beginning chapter of <laughs> not the opening paragraph of the next chapter. Right. Um, so it's uh, so and numbers like that make it really easy to hide just how uh, just how expensive this whole proposition, even to get it that getting to that point is. I think yeah, usually I mean, the the heartbreak that happens with um, uh, you know these tech companies, these startups, they happen after the VC funded. They don't happen before, right? Because if your right. company fizzles <laughs> before. No one heard about it. You didn't have to yeah. fight with lawyers, with survivor with investors. Bias. Yeah, exactly. Cool but survivor if, bias. If, you, if you take the money and mm-hmm. then things go south after that, that's when, like, that's when the you know that's when employees get screwed on taxes for options. That's when yep. founders get diluted and get nothing. That's when you know lawyers had to go at it between people who were you know your investors who were previously buddy buddy going to dinner with you and stuff talking about your big business model, oh, who are yeah. now come, trying to maybe sue you like. That's when shit goes south. Yeah, I've known many companies where eventually the lawyers were the ones that made the most money off of this. Oh, 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 definitely. The first (laughs) first time around that I ever tried entrepreneurialism, it was in the Silicon Valley system. Um, Our law firm was Maverin. And uh, so our our CEO paid Maverin a shitload of money to, or excuse me, not Maverin, Oric. Oric, uh, the SV law firm. So they paid Oric a shitload of money to like incorporate and uh, introduce us to a bunch of VCs. And I went into all of the offices on Sandville Road and all this stuff. And like, you know, things were looking good. And we met with like a bunch of a bunch of out-of-state VCs and local VCs. Um, and I was like, you know, helping to pitch the company and all this stuff. And ultimately, the, the people who made the most money were obviously the lawyers. But the, the, the lawyers also tor- uh, torpedoed the entire company. Because one of their one of their uh, big, I think it was Kleiner or or Maverin, one of, one of the other uh, bigger clients of theirs, obviously one of the you know huge funds, had a competing startup that did almost exactly the same thing, and like their name was there was something and this was a long time ago so I don't remember but the name uh, was a problem so the. <laughs> So the, the, the law firm actually sued their own client to change their name and the CEO didn't want to do it. And there was a bunch of drama and ultimately the thing just went into the shitter. So that's like one of the, that's one of the anti-survivor bias stories that nobody ever talks about because nobody's willing to name names or whatever. Right. But I mean, I will, I don't care. So, (laughs) you know, you got to watch out when you're dealing with Oric or Silicon Valley bank, like one of these, one of these people out there. You just gotta watch out. What, yeah, no what, one's what? actually no one's actually on your side here. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
like VC, like investors offering money that you only hear about the 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 number or that oh this this very important influential uh, VC company believes in this product believes in the founders and and believes in its success no they they believe in their success their own success and they are willing to throw you into the meat grinder to generate their to make if your product or you helps them make money Right. It's fundamentally an antagonistic relationship. It's just that yeah. we have a distorted vision of money. We believe that money is a validator. Uh, that it's, this, yeah, yeah, it's like the most abusive employer-employee relationship you could possibly conjure. <laughs> like yeah. out of out of the, how the system works. Yeah. yeah, it's akin to we gave you money, we own you now. Uh, that's exactly that's the entire it's not oh I gave you money because you know I I love you or something. It's no I I bought you. I bought right, you, so, I bought your company, you work for, you are mine now. Exactly. And if you, not even, it's even worse than that, like in the situation that I just uh, talked about, Auric, the law firm, was taking money from that, our, our company, they were taking money from the VCs, they were like, they were, they were oh, taking wow. money from everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And then they engineered the failure of the company, basically. So it's like, Okay, so it's not even that they're going to make money. They're going to take yours, too. It's, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Once you sign it, then the, now they dictate your business model. So Arnie talked about that earlier. I uh, hope we'll get into that in a bit as well. But now your entire business plan is, is, is theirs for the choosing, right? I've seen so like so many like the hundred to one ratio, right? The hundred failed companies to the one unicorn. They are willing to sacrifice that hundred, but they're going to run all of those hundred as if they're going to try to be that one. So what ends up being falling by the wayside is a company that might, if you give them like three to five years and they generate like let's say I don't know ten to twenty million dollars uh, in in sustainable revenue year over year, right? Mm -hmm. They're not gonna. That's that's not. That's not success to them. They want you to get to a billion in two years, or they're gonna, or they're gonna toss you out. They're gonna throw you out of the street. And pursuit of that billion, they're going to change your business model completely, run you into the ground, uh, scale at completely unsustainable levels, and then throw you away if it doesn't work out. And all they had to do was sign over some money that they were, you know, that their LP. That means nothing to them. Were, yeah, they were yeah. expecting them to lose, like one in thirty or whatever. While you do mm -hmm. other work, yeah. yeah don't, don't tell the so people yet about uh, how preferred stock works. Oh God! Yeah, the <laughs> this is another yeah. huge, huge fucking another huge fucking scam. Uh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. For the uninitiated who might be listening to this, uh, basically, what preferred stock means is that uh, when you're when VCs or investors invest in your company. It's a structure where in which they ensure they get paid first if your company gets acquired or liquidated. So uh, what that means is that, uh, you know, let's say they're guaranteed like, I don't know, like a 20% return and your company's acquired for a certain amount, they are going to get paid first. And once they are paid and once that return on investment is given to them, like, uh, let's say your company gets acquired for, I don't know, $20 million. The VCs put in uh, $5 million. Uh, they, first, you got to siphon off that $6 million for the VCs. And then the remainder is to be split up between yourself, you maybe your co-founders, maybe any employees who have, who have stock or options in the company, and so on and so forth. So that's like a particularly, uh, like, rosy example. Usually, the, uh, usually with the delta between uh, the... VC, the value of the preferred stock and the total acquisition is 
not that high but uh, yeah that is something that uh, people don't really realize right like uh, and it affects employees at startup who join startups too where uh, and you know you see this a lot in silicon valley where people say hey i'm going to join this hotshot startup and you know if you believe in it and you like the company and yeah the investors is good ones out there even though we've just spent time bitching and bitching them out yeah, there are good uh, ones yeah for sure yeah if you like all of that great but uh, you know i've done the math on this for companies that i've uh, you know joined or like you know looked at for at exit scenarios at and if chaser unless you're like a really really early employee where you know your risk tolerance has to be really high for that uh, you're not going to become the uh, you're going to make you probably going to make good money you're just not going to become the you know someone worth like tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in the way you might imagine unless it's like one of the few unicorns of the world yeah and there's also the um there's this, I, i don't know if it's a new trend but there's a trend of convertible debt as well where they'll loan you money with mm-hmm. a warrant which is an option that never expires basically um, yeah and, <laughs> yeah it's how, and it's how the whole safe it's how the whole safe thing safe thing works right like it converts from debt to equity once you raise money Yeah, exactly. So what they're doing is they're they're super senior in the uh, in you know in the, uh, for lack of a better word the, the bankruptcy laws. So they're at the top of the cap table and they have the they have the choice of converting the equity at any point or not. And that just depends on um on how your company does and 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 if, and if it's like you know unless you burn every dollar to the ground there's always going to be some kind of money in the company whether it's you know assets or actual cash or or something and and they'll just get out first and that's it <laughs> so you just got to be aware of these kind of structures that that exist out there yeah so mm-hmm. so we're talking about you know how predatory it is when money gets into the picture here when outside investment comes in yeah. okay so let's you're taking that seriously all right cool then your other option is okay bootstrapping it Okay, well. It's pretty dangerously easy to underestimate exactly how much money you're going to actually need to be able to float this company, this business that you're trying to create on your own. Just being real. There's a reason why these these investment companies, these banks uh can be so predatory because it's so expensive. Mhm. Yeah, it so, is, it, is, this, it is, right? And then you and then it always uh Well, not always, but then you get you get in a situation where you might have enough cash to get from zero to one, but maybe not from one to ten, if that makes sense. So, when it comes to scaling up, like uh, you know, you're you realize that hey, like your per pro, like your cost per product or cost per or like uh, customer acquisition cost is really high, and you can't really get to a point where you can use eco- eco- economies of scale to bring it down without outside investment. Yeah, it's true. Uh like uh like I operated in California, a uh, very expensive state. Um and uh just one one example off the top of my head and I think I've mentioned it before, so I'll keep this one quick. It's uh the requirement for like health insurance, right, for employees. Mhm. Um so it's uh it, the cap is pretty low. I think it's like 15 people or something. Uh but the employer is responsible for for providing that. Um so that means that you can go from like 1 to 14 employees without uh without incurring that but as soon as you get to 15 all of a sudden your overhead can like can like quintuple uh yeah. because of that requirement in oh, addition well. to uh yeah in addition to like having you know you need a bigger space so rent so utilities all of that the numbers go the numbers trend up 
um, your expenses can kind of go logarithmic without your revenue following. Mm-hmm. Is the, it, for, right at that 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 sensitive margin when you're actually going yeah. from when you, so it sounds like a linear thing, like going from one to fourteen versus one to fifteen employees, but all of a sudden your exp, your expenses have just shot through the roof. Yeah, and for anyone out there who's listening, um, we actually just during the course of our business, we we bumped up against that, and so what we did was actually uh, so we we contracted with Trinet, which is an, an outsourced HR medical benefits company. Um, to kind of offload some of that. And what we did was we went virtual. We canceled our commercial real estate leases. Or not canceled. We let them expire. And the, and also they tried to extort us after it expired. But that's another story. See, but, yeah, predatory predatory real yeah. estate shit. Yeah. Yeah, commercial real estate guys are even fucking worse than the venture capitalists. But that's another story for another time. So we, we let our lease expire and then we just went virtual and it was the best decision we ever made. It was in 2016. Yeah. So we, we dispersed our office and we outsourced all of our HR overhead to uh, Trinet. And that was a great decision. So anyone out there who's dealing with this, do that. <laughs> yeah, stay as, stay as lean as possible. Yeah. Like I was, I was, <laughs> I was registering our company with like multiple states as, a, as an employer. And that just, that, that was a, one of the worst yeah. mistakes I ever did. Because then, then all of the, all of the tax authorities in all these states started coming after us because they thought that we were oh they're in multiple states they must be a huge company right no who told you to do that like was this uh, that, advice you were given no that was a mistake that I made okay um, I just I just figured because we were using like I don't know I don't know if it was ADP or or like Citibank or commercial banker that had our payroll at the time and. They didn't do any of this stuff, and I was just like, "Oh well, we just hired somebody in uh, Oregon or Texas or whatever." And, oh, oh, okay, well, because you, I, they were there, you had yeah, to. Yeah, because they were there. Had I had they, we had Nexus in the state, so I had to register for the state, and that just my mailbox started just filling up with tax forms. I was like, "Holy fuck, what just happened here?" And that was a mistake. So eventually, we flipped over to Trinet, and I had to deal with the fallout from that stuff. Um, for a while. And, and the way the Trinet works is they are actually registered in all 50 states. So our employees actually become on paper their employees. And what we do is we wire money to them every month and they pay our employees and all the benefits go through them. So it's basically like outsourced payroll or uh, excuse me, outsourced employment. So they, our employees be, essentially became contractors, but they had all of the benefits of scale with Trinet and yeah, that just never, never do it yourself uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff, because they, the, 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 the tax authorities will just come after you like incessantly. They're vultures. Yeah. yeah they're vultures. They will come after you for every <laughs> fucking dollar you have. Yeah. And, and, for something and, like and, that? and they think you're like some hotshot startup with VC money. Right. So this is good. Yeah. You owe us a hundred thousand dollars for this, that, or the other thing. And you're like, what? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, yeah, deal with it. And so then we had to hire lawyers and all, all that shit. But anyways, yeah. that, that that's a hard lesson uh, that anyone out there listening. Outsourcing is one of those, this just makes me think that outsourcing is one of those uh, mini myths that people don't talk about with startups, right? Like there's a lot of startups these days, tech startups, where all the work, all the glamorous software engineering and all that stuff and like the customer success and all that stuff is being done offshore somewhere else. Um, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So another piece. Yeah, of I mean, at the at the the last couple of years, 
the workload was just getting so high for me that we 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 hired uh, we hired a, a couple of firms out of uh, Latin America, South America, so Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, etc. And these guys did really good work. It's it's not like twenty years ago when you do this and you just get dog shit as a product. It's like this shit was better than better than what we could have done ourselves, and and that's the entire selling point. And I mean, these guys were legit. You know, they had. They had a U.S. entity. They banked at uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, so we just wrote checks to Cal- like California, basically, and it was all 100% legit. And they did good work. And yeah, that's that's, that's a lot. A lot of it works that way these days. Yeah, but yeah, they're not seamless. they're not the employees who are who are photographed for like the culture page on your website. Right, right. right. That's, no, the, that's yeah. the lie, right? You know. Yeah. Well, so there's unless a, there's you need a to unless you need to like melanate a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so this company right now that uh, to, that the uh, startup I'm working at is like has contracted for this called Deal, like spelled D E E L, and the whole thing is to basically help you employ people like as a de facto full time employee, uh, but if they're in another country, and that just means and to me that's interesting because I like uh, I mean I can't uh, because I know that uh, what one of the things that it enables is like just making sure that they're not like employed as contractors so they don't need to you know like fulfill in fill invoices in or anything like that mm-hmm. and it also means that you know you can start building like a full-time team like composed of people like of, from of multiple nationalities or uh, from different locations yeah. uh, where they're you know like fully and you know where they're fully invested where they might even i don't know like maybe maybe you can even set it up so that they uh, get equity in the company like the way they were a u.s one uh, but uh yeah, I think there's basically, I think basically what you're seeing right now on the tech side is that uh, it is a professionalized, uh, it is a pro- sort of like professionalized entrepreneurship, right? In the sense that it's, uh, you know, if you go to, I don't know, South Florida or something, someone tells you they're an entrepreneur, that means they probably own a bunch of jet ski dealerships or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, like, like yeah. Or uh, actually, I'm just going to send this in the Discord chat, but there's a great... Uh, article by Patrick Weidman, who runs the podcast uh, Tides of History. Uh, it's a great article about, that he's written about the local gentry of, of America, right? A lot of these people are entrepreneurs in the strictest sense of the word in that they started their own business. But their business is something really like, you know, frankly, is really some, something that's really, uh, frankly, like, you know, like unintellectual or just kind of boring, just rakes in money because America is a huge market. And so it could be something like, yeah trucking apples from the farms to like owning a bunch of apple orchards and the trucking company that moves the apples from the orchards to the warehouse or whatever right so uh that's like that's basically one side of it and uh, that's basically one side of it the traditional side the tech side of it is much more professionalized in the sense that uh going into the tech side you usually have a uh usually like come out, uh, you, you know, you're, you're usually college educated. Uh, maybe you've got a few years of experience at a big tech company and entrepreneurship is kind of seen as the uh, next, uh, you know, the next rung on the ladder or the next step you take in your overall career journey, right? And uh, once you become an entrepreneur as well, there's a clear path from where you iterate on your MV- MVP. Maybe you go through Y Combinator or another kind of accelerator. You go through a particular network of angel investors to raise a pre-seed round, then raise a seed round from a set of uh, seed VCs who, you know, add value, who you think will add value. There's usually a small subset of them. 
because uh, most VCs don't make money and aren't particularly useful beyond just writing you a check. Uh, then, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to get a series A, scale up to this amount, uh, you know, start like offering some enterprise SaaS thing or something of the, like that. And then ultimately the end of the end rung on the ladder is selling, selling it, getting acquired by Salesforce or Google or whoever. So there's a very clear path from like, hey, of like, hey, uh, I need to go to college, work at Fang or similarly sized company, uh, go through, like come up with an MVP, go through Y Combinator, go through a seed series A and then ultimately get acquired or exit somewhere, some way or the other. And then once that happens, you know, like have a midlife crisis and then become entrepreneur in residence at the VC that <laughs> invested you in the first place. <laughs> so like that whole path is there and, uh, you know, maybe it'll get you a lot of money, maybe it won't, but uh, it'll get you a certain level of uh, respectability that another, that a similar professional managerial class career would. Whereas if you if you're owning a bunch of jet ski dealerships or apple orchards and you know you're clocking in a few million a year and living you know living it up like going in the Bahamas every other month that kind of thing, yeah, uh, it's still a very, oh, that's very it, real. yeah that's very real. There's tons of people who do that, right? Like you ever go to like an all-inclusive resort in Mexico or uh, the Caribbean, you'd meet tons of people like that. But yeah. uh, that's what the you know the hashtag entrepreneurship community like people who identify as that. Uh, aren't going to accord the same level of respect to that or like societal standing to that as -hmm. they would someone who did the first one, even if they made like absolutely fuck all money in whatever enterprise SaaS company they started. Yeah. But these days I feel like I have more respect for that jet ski dealer and that whole, that whole type of hustle than like the tech startup hustle, maybe because I went through the tech startup hustle and saw the, the, you know, the grimy underbelly. The realness of it, yeah. Yeah, just because of or like the, the unrealness of it. The unrealness. Like, yeah. Yeah. You call it vaporware. That's like a lot of it is hype. Like, look, when the you know, if civilization collapses, like ninety nine percent of this shit does not does not matter. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny you mentioned the jet skis because uh, without giving too much away, I I, I know a guy, um, friend of mine, uh, owns one of those kinds of businesses somewhere in the Western United States, and. Yeah, I mean, dude, you, you know how expensive it is to rent a boat? It's like 500 bucks or something for a couple of hours, right? And as long as you know how to run a fleet of boats, um, it, it can be a very lucrative business. And these guys have like, these guys have- Wait, a, did, you say, a, a, did you say owning a bunch of boats can be a very lucrative business? Yeah, if, if it's your business, not as a, you know, not as a, a rich guy who likes boats because you're- you know, the, you're monetizing these boats at like a thousand dollars a day each, right? So it's oh, you'd uh, be you'd, and, you'd, so you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised, like so. I say I sail, right? And uh, yeah, like that kind of business, it turns out just doesn't make that much money because when you're on the hook for maintaining a piece of equipment that is as like prone to getting fucked up as a boat, <laughs> you're just like paying money out the was like you're just paying money out of your ass every every single time you need a repair. But that's right, a whole so other conversation. So, Right, so he he does his own maintenance. He's uh, mechanically inclined. He does a lot of his own work. Like as the business owner, he's wrenching, and mm-hmm. he hires kids who want to learn about um, learn about wrenching on motors in general, but, but you know boats specifically in this case. And he doesn't all, he, he doesn't only do boats. He does jet skis. He does paddle boards. He does like little pleasure boat. Like I think they call them uh, Murphys or Boston Whalers or something like that. 
Oh yeah, Boston um, Whalers. Those are cool. Those are cool. Yeah, so like you know, like a family will just rent one of these things and cruise around the harbor uh, mm-hmm. and pay like hundreds of dollars for a couple of hours, and they can picnic and and do whatever. Um, and so that that business is good. And the, what's interesting is, so I went on a a, a trip to him to uh, Hawaii just to hang out, and like he knew every single person in Hawaii who had a business like this. And apparently they have like this convention every year where they all get together, you know? Oh yeah. There's and, a treasure and, for everything. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, and talk about their business and they all know each other. Like everybody in the country who owns a boat in, in the U S who owns a boat business or a water, uh, they call it power sports because water sports is, <laughs> is a tainted, tainted term. <laughs> <these days>. <laughs> yeah, so, so they call it power sports. He does, parasailing and all this shit like all these people know each other and it's it's kind of crazy that they you know like combined they probably have billions of dollars worth of worth of market and yeah it's just something nobody ever talks about because it's like when you go to a a a vacation spot like hawaii and the boat rental or parasailing or paddleboard or whatever like surf lessons it's just like part of the furniture you never really think about it right Oh yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of value locked up in in that. And it's easy yeah. to perceive it's it's value that's uh, instinctively understandable. You can actually value this, you can you can tabulate the market for this. Um the kind of entrepreneurship or 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 valuation that I think the bulk of us here are familiar with is really intangible stuff. Like uh like the at the height of like social media platform um frenzy like i saw this uh this facebook but for dog owners oh yeah uh, yeah, yeah. i've heard of this one yeah and at their peak they were they were valued at like 70 like like i I think it's 70 million with an m or something or i I, 70 billion sounds little that's that's extreme but anyway an eye-popping number for a thing that like at its peak had like maybe a thousand users um it was like specific to LA too. Um, and that, w- that was the kind of numbers that they were swinging around. Like, Oh, well, no. you know, this is one of, this was considered mm. like one of LA's tech successes in like 2013 <laughs> yeah. or something. No, one, of, one of our very paltry. Uh, yeah. 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 So it's like, it's a way for people with dogs to connect. It's got like a map of all of LA's dog parks, all yeah. six. Well, of them. well, you know, uh, you know, one um, kind of sustainable under the radar business is, uh, Embark, E-M-B-A-R-K. They do genetic testing for dogs, and they'll, you know, they'll send. It, it, you know, it's like uh, Ancestry.com except for dogs, right? <laughs> so, they, so they'll tell you like, oh, we think that your dog is fifty uh, percent this mix or this breed, twenty-five uh, percent this other breed, et cetera, et cetera. And there's like kind of a social network attached to it, and like when 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 there's another dog in the country that has your uh, your dog's genetic uh, mix like something close to it, they'll, they'll like email you. Um, so I did it for my dog and that's how I know about it. But, but apparently this thing is run out of Cornell university, um, mm-hmm. which has like a Cornell is like the UC Davis of the Ivy league, right? They have like ag yeah. uh, stuff, <laughs> like a hotel like, school, you know, yeah. hotel management. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. food service stuff. So, so it's, you know, it's, it's very like salt of the earth Ivy league. Um, but yeah, it's run out of Cornell by like some professor. Or, or something yeah, if that, like that sounds like a contradiction, you haven't been to Cornell. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No disrespect either. This is they do really great work, like for veterinary science, for agriculture science. Top of the line stuff comes out of Cornell. So the thing, uh, the thing they had a great physics. You guys, do. Yeah. Go ahead. 
the thing that you guys made me think about with the, the talk about the, the water skis and even this dog thing is like another another myth is that people don't really know about this very simple idea of like what the margins are for a business when they go into it. Oh, and I've always yeah. thought it'd be really interesting to just get like a stack rank, like a list of like, you know, top, top, you know, 250 types of different businesses and what their average margins are. So you can see what's kind of a cushy, you know, a cushy business to start versus a, a very, very challenging one, right? Like restaurants, yeah, for example, I... like famously three to 5% margins, right? Like super hard, super slim decisions are mm-hmm. difficult because of that. Everything kind of trickles down from your ability to, to sell the thing well and make a profit. So, but yeah. it doesn't get thought about when you go into that. That would be good data, you know, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Glassdoor was trying to pilot something like that a number of years ago, and then it just got it, it just got nuked. I'm not sure what the decision there was, but they were actually soliciting stuff from um, from people to actually ask about like square like cost per square footage if you have an office footprint, you know, utilities, service uh, service overhead, uh, as, as well as like payroll, all of that customer like acquisition costs stuff like that but i never said i know i I know this data i know this data exists you just need Mm -hmm. to pay like five thousand dollars a report for it because there's all these companies i know yeah like i just i just just googled it i'm gonna read it to you i just googled it there's an article on uh inc.com so take it with a grain of salt um it says 15 most profitable industries in 2016 ranked by net profit margin number one is accounting Accounting, tax prep, bookkeeping, payroll services, 18%. I believe it. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Followed by legal services, 17%. Okay. Again, yep. And then... Uh, Lower than I thought, but sure. Yeah. Ballpark. And then, I don't know if this term is, lessers of real estate? Person who leases... Oh, leasers of real estate. Uh, person yeah. who, who leases uh, property to another landlord. Sorry, another person, a landlord, basically. So landlords, they make 17.4% profit margins equal to legal services. So, yeah, oh, well, that must good. be normalized across the entire country. I bet in uh, oh, high yeah, cost yeah. of living cities, that's uh, that number is much higher. So I think one of the things that's difficult over here is that so software businesses that succeed need to have like tend to have pretty good margins, right? Like I'd say even beyond like the eighteen percent or seventeen percent ones, but a lot of them are just like hard to. Uh, they're basically hard to like put a pin in, right? Like you can, like people will sometimes classify something like Blue Apron as a tech company, even though what they're doing is building a nice website and then mailing you a bunch of like shit, there, like vegetables that they've already pre-cut right. for you. Like is it Intuit a software company or an accounting company? Yeah, good question. Yeah, and everyone wants to be a tech company. Yeah, being a tech company so is glamorous, right? Like there is yeah. the... There's that, and then like you know, from the business side of it, it's uh, the VC economics work for tech companies because uh, there's like pretty much no distribution cost. Uh, every you can just like mint infinite copies of your software, like at least you know, at least to a reasonable extent, uh, and sell it without having to actually assemble the damn thing, right? Uh, then you start, and then so the economics of that work, the scalability of it works really well. Uh, and the VC model is suited for that kind of business to an extent, at least, because uh, that's just how you get break-tech returns. Uh, the problem is when you try to apply the VC model to uh, stuff that isn't just enterprise SaaS software and uh, isn't ju- or like you know like super like deep tech around sensors or something like that, where you end up monopolizing the market. The problem is when you start trying to apply it to the real world, like uh, Uber or DoorDash or Airbnb or one of these things, that that's when shit starts getting a little fucked up. 
true. Yeah. 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 It's it's funny. Uh, I mean, our our accountants, they, or our previous accountants, I mean, we had like, we had like three different accounting firms, <laughs> which is ridiculous. And they they do they were super efficient and they specialized, right? So we had one bookkeeping company, and one tax accounting company, and then one personal accounting uh, personal tax company. And they were like, I would just give them all of my spreadsheets and data or whatever, and they would just come back in like a day or two with the the, the end product. And I was like, damn, this is. Like it would take me weeks to figure this out, right? And, and it's not because like I, I don't know how to run a spreadsheet. It's just they they just know. I mean, they're they're financial people, so they just know all of the legislation and all of the little tricks and tips and loopholes. And they got and, and they got boilerplate, you know, spreadsheets. And yeah, I mean, they just they just seen it a million times, so yeah. it doesn't surprise me that that industry is 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 a very, very high well margin. oiled yeah. machine. Yeah, yeah, very high margin. Um, yeah, so mar- so just bringing it back to margins, and then let's uh, move on to the tech-specific stuff. Um, although we did get into that quite a bit, but, you know, the second half of our podcast today. Uh, I want to call oh. out specifically, um, I've been seeing this more and more in recent years, uh, just plain burying uh, the uh, that, that a lot of these, su- quote, successful companies that get featured in, in uh, like, glossy mags and all of that how much money they came in with i'm seeing a lot of that just get completely buried so i'm talking about like um people that are promoted as like scrappy startup guys or entrepreneurs or something they bootstrap their way up um and yes they technically bootstrapped but uh their bootstraps were like their dad is a billionaire oh this is stuff like that right what is this not the mailchimp or mailgun or one of one of these companies right uh, they sold for like twenty billion dollars or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, and as oh, it yeah, turns yeah. out, as it turns out, uh, husband was early Google employee, wife was like Facebook executive or some mm-hmm. or some shit like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I can't remember. I think it was. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, I'll Google it. But yeah, one, one of these like just send mail as a service companies. Yeah, some mm-hmm. these are just yeah. common, and I think they're actually more the norm than not. That you know, uh, you're starting from a cushier. You're definitely starting from a way, way cushier place than most people. That most people that who are being promote, who are being pitched to as po- as people who should be getting into entrepreneurship. So, like, uh, I mean, there was there was a guy like like twenty seventeen or eighteen or something like that, and I just laughed my ass off uh, because he was like sitting in his parents' garage and like, yeah, I wanted to you know recapture the spirit of the, you know the good old hacking days when you would just hunker down and you know grind it out in your parents' garage and something. So I just made it work, and you right. know I did it, and I'm successful, and I'm I'm so proud that I did that. Fucker lives in Palo Alto. <laughs> That's his parents' garage. Big ass house, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, that garage oh, yeah, alone so is worth like a million and some change. <laughs> right? Yeah, you can yeah, lease that it out for ten thousand a month. <laughs> yeah, talking about grinding it out in your parents' garage. What did you have to kick the? Did you have to kick the Lamborghini out? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not even uh, Lamborghini money in, in Palo Alto yeah, anymore. Yeah. But you know, yeah, yeah that, that's just like a refurbished Prius money. Twelve million for Mailchimp. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's depressing on its own. Um, but yeah, like a like a different like a different company. Um, 
that I just happened to follow on on Instagram for this woman. Uh, she runs this, like she just it's not really tech or anything, right? But a skincare company um, that just kind of just came to dominate the the scene over almost overnight over a couple of a couple of years um just out of nowhere uh and she's now selling herself as this like girl boss you know female entrepreneurship thing uh you know like anyone can be like me you just work hard and believe in yourself and all that her husband is one of the country's richest men a financier <laughs> he's nice. he's worth he's worth like he's worth like 30 billion dollars oh man uh, but and his wife suddenly just has like America's hottest skincare company now, right? It's it's that kind of intentional. Uh, it it's that it's a very intentional cover up. Just how much money is actually required to make a to make a name for yourself out there? Yeah, it's not, and it's not just. I mean, in this case, probably there's you know, it's a really nice, healthy friends and family round if your husband's a billionaire, right? <laughs> um, but I, I also say. think like even just if you had the kind of cushion of being able to get back to your previous job or survive for two years you know on zero income and Mm -hmm. so on even that alone is a big leap for uh you know as opposed to people who just don't have that you know yeah right much more bringing much closer down to earth and yeah just simply having the means to keep the lights on keep you know yourself and maybe your family if you have one fed right make sure they're not you're not they're not going to be uh struggling to yeah. to satisfy your ego on this yeah and i mean even even myself um you know when i started i there was basically zero chance that i would ever have to start right because the worst case scenario is i just move back in with my parents like if i literally spent every dollar i have just move back with my parents and try to find another job. And a lot, a lot of people don't don't have that. So it's yeah, it's just something to keep in mind. Or something you need to build up, right? Like, yeah. um, um, like what gets lost when you try to talk about like the twenty-two-year-old wonderkind um, who who does who who makes it big and becomes a billionaire. Like that was really a moonshot. This kid has nothing to fall back on. Uh, well, maybe if he has like a degree from Stanford or something, yeah. Then you know, it's never, it's never like, it's never like work a minimum wage job or become a billionaire, right? <laughs> right. Uh, that's the thing. So, like right. a lot of people, um, they do the grind. Like they get a job at one of the big fang companies for like I don't know, like five years or something. That seems about at, like three to five years. It seems like, and then they make a play. But that play is still, and that play makes sense, but it's still somewhat safe uh, because once you have that on your resume. Um, you can, you're never going to fall below uh, where that resume will get you. Yeah. Yeah, So you're describing, you're describing precisely my situation, five years at a fang, literally five years. Right. And then left to, to join a bootstrap startup and had no income for a few years, a couple years, right. Before we got off the ground. And yeah, there was the cushion of knowing for one, the company said, if you come back within a year, you can have your same job. No questions asked. Oh, wow. Right. So, that's so one Phil, thing. were you yeah, using one. savings to get by? Get yeah. by or? Yeah. Okay. All right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and for the other, I had, I had savings. Yeah. From the time at, at, at the bank, the company. And mm-hmm. I think the, the piece of advice here would be, it's not just about like having the savings and be able to do it for a little while and, and try to chase it and so on. It's also about considering the opportunity costs, right? Because those, um, you know, two, three years I spent without much income from my, my startup um, were also years I did not make that cushy salary at that bank company I could have stayed at, right? Which has other implications for my my personal life, such as buying a home, for example, 
right? Yeah. Um, you know, or starting a family or whatever it might be for people. So that's, that's another piece that kind of gets lost in the planning part, but it's worth thinking about. Yeah. And that, and the, the idea that uh, if you, if you make that kind of sacrifice and there will be a payoff at the end, um, that's, that's something you got to consider carefully. That's not a guarantee. Yeah. There's no guarantees for sure. I mean, you have to expect that the expected outcome could be zero. Yeah. Right? Because of all the stuff we discussed today, you know, like predatory stuff or just the, the state of the market changing or whatever else, like even COVID for, as an example, right. Shut down a whole ton of businesses, small businesses yeah. um, and startups um, because of the ramifications, right. From the shutdowns. Yeah. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, Mike, what, what was, what was your finances like for the first uh, bit of time as an entrepreneur? Well, Were you working off savings or um, well, okay. did you have clients so, right off the right from the get go? So, I mean, we bootstrapped at bootstrapped as a consulting company. So, oh, okay. Um, so, clients were, were yeah, we had, bulk of your revenue. We had customers, but there were. I mean, like, okay. So, even if you do that and you have a contract on day zero, you're not going to get paid until day sixty or something, mm-hmm. right? So, you need to have it. Or I mean, I I had at least a couple of months, a few months of savings uh, in in my bed, and I was like twenty four or five at the time. So. You know, this, this was not like deep into my career or anything. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, luckily we had really good consulting clients and we were in a kind of a hot space at the time, which was enterprise search. Um, it was a B2B business, um, stuff like solar and elastic search and all that stuff was not, uh, open sourced at the time or, or, or wasn't released at the time. Or maybe it was, but it was just super immature. Um, so like we, we bootstrapped and we had revenue pretty soon, but that involved, uh, myself and my business partner flying off to, um, places like Seattle, Boston, Chicago, you know, New York and staying in shitty hotel rooms for weeks at a time, like two or three weeks at a time. And I know was, that's, uh, it, it was a pretty looking back on it. I mean, at the time it didn't seem that bad because I had no, uh, I, I had no obligations whatsoever, basically as a 24 <laughs> year old. So it was fine. But like these days, I, I, I wouldn't do that for, for 10 times the money. Like, Oh yeah. Just fly to Boston and stay in a, a shitty hotel for three weeks and do work. <laughs> like, no, I'm not doing that. Right. Yeah. So it was, um, yeah, it, it was fine financially, but it was just very hard physically. And I don't think we had our first, uh, non-consulting client, like, a until I'm trying to think, I think it was 2010. So that would have been, yeah, later in the 20th. So two years without, a real client in the main sort of thrust of our business. It was just consulting up until then. So, so yeah, I mean, that was, that was the situation. Yep. It's always longer than you think before that first, uh, first dollar pops into your bank account. Yeah. And I'll say this, the consulting was good, right? We were making pretty good money. So if you don't have that cash flow to bootstrap a business, it would be two years, uh, you know, I think yeah. just like Philip said, right? Like two, two years, that's 
that's the baseline. Just assume that you need to have uh, two years of two years of runway, um, whether whether that's investor money or your own savings. It has to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so. and other stuff too, right? Like, it's not just the two years of savings, but again, like I said, two years of not making money cost. for opportunity yeah. costs. Yeah, mm-hmm. but for me, it was also like I had a whole, I had you know, great healthcare uh, benefits from. My previous company and and of course socialized healthcare in Canada. Um, I didn't. I no longer had those health benefits when I left my company, so I couldn't like get my glasses updated for like you know a few years. Couldn't oh, get yeah. uh, you know like dental was out of pocket, right? Stuff like that. But further than that, I also had uh, a whole bunch of health issues during the first few years of my startup. I went to I keep telling people the story. Like I went to um, like emerge at one point. I had a couple like a procedure done. Um, you know, a whole bunch of shit, right? Doctor's visits, like prescriptions, all this stuff. And I, I tell the story usually to point out like the benefits of like single payer healthcare in the, in the yeah. case of entrepreneurship. I paid like, I think a total of like 20 bucks, it's like a filling fee for the drugs I needed and $0 for everything else. And that was what allowed me to keep doing my job and not have to worry about like yeah. $2,000 or $3,000, you know, bill, like throwing off my budget. Right during these lean times. Yeah. So I've that was a, a, that was a big benefit. I've got a story about this too. So um, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on a pod, but I had my hip replaced. My right oh, hip was replaced maybe I think eight years into the business. And this is part of why I, I decided to sell. Um, just just from being stressed out twenty four seven and sitting on my ass for most of that time. I'm I'm pretty sure like my hip just, it just decided to not give a fuck anymore and just died. So I had to, I had to get, um, so luckily, uh, me, me and my business partner, we, we were like pretty smart about healthcare and all that stuff. So we took care of that stuff pretty early on, you know, after, after being unemployed or after I, after we quit or got laid or excuse me, got laid off. Um, you know, like we, we spun up the personal healthcare pretty quick, like within the first six months. Um, but then yeah, eight years later, like the shit caught up to me and I had to, I had to get a health or excuse me, my hip replaced, um, and the health insurance, uh, this is an entirely different topic, but U S health, health insurance for, uh, for like small companies and small businesses is a goddamn nightmare. It, it um, is. They really but, do incentivize. It's really optimized for being a cog in a much bigger wheel. Yeah. So you've got to have group in, uh, group coverage, which we luckily we had. Mm-hmm. And my hip insurance, or excuse me, my hip replacement cost, I think it was like 70 grand. Jesus. And, and I had to pay 5,000 out of pocket. That was because we had a high deductible plan. Um, and it took me days of calling on the phone. Like I've probably made 20 phone calls to figure out exactly how much is it going to cost? How much am I on the hook for? Are they actually going to cover it? What about all the, you know, like, uh, what is it? The, uh, uh, you know, the recovery stuff, um, and all that. So, you know, that, that's something that nobody really thinks about or talks about, but you might just come down with some shit while you're trying to build your business. And you better have coverage. And that's, yeah, that's just another thing you have to keep in mind. 
Especially if you're in the U.S., which I think most of our listeners yeah. are. If you don't yeah. have that cushion, then it gets very, very expensive, risky. Um, yeah. Especially if you're not, if you're on the, you know, on the other side of thirty, right? Little things start adding up. Yeah, and, and you know, it's funny. My surgeon, who is super, super awesome, um, when I went in to see him right before the surgery, like you know, he he knows all my information. Like he knows what coverage I have and blah blah blah. And he's like. <laughs> He's like, yeah, your condition, uh, you probably know more about it than I do at this point, because I'm sure you've just been sitting in front of your computer for days, look, looking at medical papers and all this shit, right? He's like, yeah, you probably know more about it than I do. I don't really give a shit about that. I'm here to replace your hip. And let's talk about that. So it's, yeah, it's just really weird. <laughs> it's a very weird system. Very, very, very bad system, I'd say. Yeah. Um, yeah, but just again, like nobody really talks about this, but this is the nitty gritty stuff you're going to have to think about uh, yeah. if you're going to get out, get out, um, if you're supposed to get out the other side, you know, hopefully with a bit of success um, under your under your belt here. So, yep. So did I, can, can anyone think of any other common myths out there? About uh, life? I mean, I, I think... Uh, we, we've got what, what, 10 minutes left. Um, yeah, this, this last one on the, uh, on the item is, you know, might be worth talking about is undiscovered new areas of development, web three VR, the fucking metaverse and all that stuff. Yeah. I put one on, that one on there. I, I basically, I, I think that the perception you get, especially in, in tech entrepreneurship if you read TechCrunch and you like follow, you know, all those kind of like influencers in that space is that the the tech world is this massive unlimited gold mine of like constant innovation and opportunity and just business models just waiting to be invented and, and exploited and so on, right? And for you to make a, a billion bucks off of it. When in reality, it's actually not the case. In reality, it's this like gold rush that crops up every time a new formative type of technology appears. And people mine it and mine it, and there's like blips of, uh, you know, at the, at the beginning there's like hu a huge rush to get all the models out that fit around this technology, and then you know, a year in, two years in, ten years in, it becomes a bit of a trickle. There's not much left to do, and you can see this with like mobile, right? In in 2007 when the iPhone came up, and you know right. the app apps were cropping up a year after, and everyone trying to do that. Like all the big profitable ideas were snapped up early on. Right. And some of them became large businesses with big business models. But at some point, you're just kind of rehashing shit that's already been done. Um, and that's I think that's been true for a lot of other kind of hype trains that have come out of tech. Right. Like uh, VR and, you know, number 3D printers. Right. <laughs> Where'd that go? Right. Um, you know, AI, I think it is is coming up on on some sort of um, check in on whether or not it's, it's as revolutionary as people say. And then I think Web3 and, and crypto and stuff, that's like the still the big news now it's been around for a couple of years and so people are still talking about it but just in a very different form than as like a, a you know a new tech to exploit right there's that one's kind of interesting in that sense and mike you know a lot more about that than i do um but yeah but i think there's there's limits i think there's there's only so much you can squeeze out of the stone at some point right um before yeah, it's, it's a it's a never-ending gold rush in technology and you know like i grew up in california so the 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 myth and the lore of the actual gold rush is like, I just grew up in it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, yeah, it's, it's expanding now to the entire world, basically like first North America. And then obviously just around the world, like people are, there's, there's, there's definitely a gold rush mentality. And 
you know, that, that's kind of what I worry about because once people think that there's just a never ending font of money, um, that's a top signal, right? Like shit's going to go south at some point. So I, I think that's the general macro economic environment is kind of like that right now. But, um, yeah, I mean the, the gold rush, uh, mentality is, is very real and it's, it's being promulgated by, you know, a lot of people and it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just something that you have to keep in mind in the context of all these, um, in the context of all these web three companies and cryptomania and all that stuff. And, you know, like, you know, me, I'm a, I'm a believer in Bitcoin and some of these crypto projects, but there's a lot of bullshit also. So whenever, I think, I think the thing somebody... to remember with all of these, uh, the, all of these hype cycles is that it is a uh, whenever a new technology comes, it follows this like typical hype cycle where there's like a mountain of hype. Uh, everybody mm-hmm. gets on the hype train and you know rides to the top, and then you cross the right. mountain, you get another val- what uh, I think a lot of clean tech guys call this the valley of despair. <laughs> yeah, so like the, uh, you know the bottom the, the bottom drops out of the cycle. market for some yeah. reason, right? Like in uh, clean tech, for example, uh, you had this first like wave about uh, 15, 20 years ago uh, where you had a lot of VC money going into new kinds of solar cells, new kinds of batteries, and, you know, new EV companies and that kind of thing. And then the bubble burst partly because of the recession, partly because China got really good at making silicon solar panels at a really low price. And so a lot of these companies basically just didn't have, like their economics stopped working overnight. Yeah. And uh, then clean tech entered this valley of despair phase. Uh, the bigger macro problem there was that uh, you had some VCs trying to ex- trying to apply software economics to what is a really deep like deep hardware problem, and there's only going to be a few winners from that. And uh, yeah, so that happened, and then slowly, slowly, more some companies survived it, like Tesla survived this, for example. And slowly, slowly, the scene started climbing up towards what might be called the plateau of productivity, where you had uh, Companies like realizing what business models worked and didn't. You had alternatives to VC uh, showing up that provided the right kind of financing for a lot of these uh, deep tech, uh, clean energy or climate focused companies. And uh, slowly you reach a critical point where you had, uh, you know, uh, you had a market that developed for it. People willing to buy it or pay for it uh, for various reasons. And so I think, I think whenever you, I think you see this with, pretty much every new technology like you see it with you saw it with the internet with the uh initial like right like dot-com boom and then the dot-com bust and then web two like what what people call web 2.0 but uh you know stuff like web 3 for example you you gotta you gotta you gotta be you gotta you know if you treat it like a gold rush like you gotta remember that the gold rush always goes bust at some point right there's that there's that story about how the Spanish after, uh, you know, taking over parts of like parts of Mexico and Latin and South America, basically mined so much gold and silver that they like crashed their currency in Europe and you back in Europe because it was suddenly worth a lot less. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, you get in with the gold rush mentality. It's you know, what goes up comes down is what you got to remember always. Yeah, I, I think the well, overall lie is that a lot of these it, every time there's a, a new hype cycle, right, mm-hmm. a new hype train to jump on in tech. The lie is always that they, they always pr- kind of pr- position it as they're already on the plateau of productivity, when in mm-hmm. reality, they yep. haven't even hit that trough yet. Yeah. And this, the corollary to that, too, is that some of these things will go into the trough and not come out, right? Yep. And that's just, you know, like, for example, 
like VR is actually a really good example. Like VR is in the trough of despair or whatever, the value of despair. Mm-hmm. And is. Meta is basically, Facebook is basically trying to pour $10 billion a year into it is their plan to get yeah. it out of that trough. Yeah. Right? Well, there's also the, uh, the picks and shovels dynamic. Have you guys heard of this? It's during oh, the yeah. gold rush. Yeah. Selling picks. You, yeah. yeah. The, 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 the money maker is actually selling the tools to mine the gold. It's not actually in the gold. Nobody, yeah. nobody finds any fucking gold. <laughs> Levi Strauss. We still yeah, exactly. wear his stuff. No one, yeah, no one's, yeah. no one's found gold in California for over a century. But mm-hmm. everyone wears jeans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. dynamic just plays out over and over and over again. Yeah, it's, I it's mean, it's not necessarily funny. a negative either, because it no, seems like. Not, yeah. uh, because it, it it you can describe it that way, and that's also another way to describe like uh, like maturation, an in- maturation of an industry, right? Yep. So the plateau of productivity. This is when it be a thing, a technology actually becomes uh, like uh, that's ma- this is the mass adoption phase, right? And all the bureaucracy re- required uh, that goes into making a thing like institutionalized until it basically resembles a utility at the other end of it. Right. So this isn't necessarily to like bash the cycle or call it out. This is this is really just describing. Uh, this is actually describing a success story overall. If it gets to that productivity cycle, that means that it has now been mass adopted. Mm-hmm. It just means that the early gains have already been realized and distributed, and uh, now this and this the phase you know the productivity cycle phase is, is kind of boring at that point. Yeah, I mean these days we have blue jeans and the internet. So that's not a bad outcome. (laughs) So, you know, full, full circle here. Um, So, yeah, I mean, Arnav, you, you, you put something on the outline that I thought was kind of cool. Um, It was kind of interesting. I wanted to talk about that just a little Mm -hmm. bit. Uh, It's talking about like new areas of tech development. Um, Actually, I I think you're calling us something important here because uh, when we talk about like the VC model for quote innovation, we're actually hiding a bigger, uh, something bigger, which is that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, really key technology actually comes from the public sector first. Oh no, it it, it, it 100% does. And it's either, either either funding or outright R and D from the public sector that Mm -hmm. drives, you know, that's, that's the, that's that's actually the pinnacle of innovation, and what the private sector does is kind of is uh, popularizes it, distributes it, puts that little spin on it, and then makes it into a, you know a, a business model that other people can adopt and adapt on. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those, to- yeah, for sure. So uh, I can give like I can give a couple of examples here, right? But uh, like the first transistors, which basically under underline pretty much all uh, like all computers out there now. Uh, they're developed, I think, at uh, I want to say Bell Labs or uh, Bell Labs or like a, Bell, yeah, or like or you know, or uh, you know, later on uh, at companies like Shockley or Fairchild Semiconductors. Uh, and what all of these things have in common is that in the case of a place like Bell Labs, where not only do you get transistors, but you also got things like uh, like solar cells, like solar cells and like photovoltaics and other such technology uh a lot of that was was either funded by these huge like monopolistic uh, corporations so like AT&T Bell yeah. for example or they were funded by government uh, money either directly or indirectly uh, yeah and then mm-hmm. like fi- and so like through DARPA right like DARPA funded a lot of this research initially uh DARPA also funded research into what became ARPANET which in turn like was kind of like the first major internet network uh, and then, like the other like example in 
the internet with the internet is something like uh cern which is that he which you know which is about which is this like multinational body funded by the various european countries that ended up developing tcp ip which is what the protocol that underlines the entire internet right uh so like these are all like public examples uh well hold on cern developed http tcp ip was a us invention oh i stand corrected i stand corrected yeah <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for that yeah this is uh the, yeah this is how you know i'm like not that technical uh but uh yeah so you know also that is like one part of it right like the public money and the public entities actually go and develop the you know ended up developing the tech directly and hey, you know what that's fine uh developing a lot of these things happen through advances in fundamental science or like very like uh like you know like fundamental fundamental engineering and that's just not something that a private com- like a private corporation unless it's really really big and has the resources to throw at r&d is able to do and it's not within their mandate you can say it's in the public good to an extent the part yeah that, I mean, yeah the so the part the, so that part like you know i'm sure a lot of people listening might have realized a while ago right like it's pretty pretty straightforward the part that people don't realize always is how public money is used to create markets for a lot of these products that come out right so like the more modern day examples of this are tax credits for solar and wind and electric vehicles but gps the, for gp yeah. yeah gps is a great example here as well but uh, it's also like the government it's also the government and specifically the us government becoming the first the first customer or like the the kind of like the market making customer for a lot of these new technologies so solar panel is a great example here this company sunpower it's one of the 10 largest uh, uh solar manufacturers on the planet and i think the largest american one uh they got their start making solar panels for uh various uh space missions for nasa and for nasa and the dod and uh the reason they needed that is because nobody else was willing to pay the astronomically high amount i think it was like 20 dollars a watt uh for a solar panel at that time right it just didn't make sense but uh you know nasa needed to send uh spaceships in space uh and send probes to you know saturn or wherever and they needed uh, and you can't send a bunch of gas with it so they needed solar panels and that's why they decided to buy them so uh what people don't what people don't always always miss is that uh by the time the vcs have come in you know you're talking about uh at this point you're talking about like you know having a market that's proven out to an extent having a technology that's been in gestation for a really long time like uh you know years if not decades and when the vcs come in it's usually about deploying the tech in a new application or in a new form or through a new business model right uh so example of this in clean tech is you know deploying it is through solar as a service so a company called sun edison pioneered that uh, way back in the day and a lot of other companies like sunrun took that forward and you know they had some v some vc funding from what i understand or some private equity funding at some point but uh this is uh you know this is the kind of stuff where vcs coming in can make a difference but if you're talking about driving fundamental advancements in technology you can't do it without that initial push from public uh, from public money and uh, that's the nuance that people really miss yeah there's a there's a, a female economist whose name escapes me who's a, a leftist economist who talks about this fact a lot like that you know a lot of public money has gone into the fundamental technologies that are now being exploited by private is companies is that uh, Mari- mariana matsukato uh that sounds her first name sounds familiar so quite possibly we have to look like it up like you're a book uh, called the entrepreneurial state right 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and and I think the the myth that this kind of dismiss the, the, the mystifies is this myth of like, you know, the libertarian free market entrepreneur mm-hmm. who believes that you know strictly private corporations are doing all the work, you know, doing all the innovation, creating all the value. When in reality, it's actually not. It's actually like a a lot of it. A lot of it, especially in tech, is built on tons of public money, taxpayers' money, basically. Yep. No, it really is. Yeah, and uh, it really is. It's a global. Yeah, well, it's 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 not just taxpayer money. It's taxpayer money in the context of like, I hate to say it, but like Cold War conflict, right? Yeah. Like that. That's what that's what drove DARPANET and gps and like a lot of the auto- automotive technology and you know the space race triggered a whole new wave of innovation all, yeah, yeah. All, all this stuff so it's and and let, let's be thankful that it was a cold war and yeah and not a, and not a yeah. kinetic mm-hmm. hot war um yeah although there were proxy conflicts and etc but sure but yeah i mean that's that's <laughs> that's i mean that's just like the plain truth of the matter for sure yeah, there's a vested interest by, you know, like the financiers of the industry to to promote the image that like it's private equity or private the private sector that's driving innovation when it's actually when it's the reverse. Uh, they have their role, but um, so it's not to say like 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 the VC model is evil necessarily. It's saying that in a in a functioning system, there's going to be healthy collaboration between a public and the private sector. Yeah, it's it's symbiotic. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, like. Yeah, like like uh, I forgot who mentioned it, but you know, like Shockley and uh, you know what eventually became Intel, and then what eventually became all of the Taiwanese firms. I mean, look, like <laughs> and Nvidia, TSMC, like all all the all this shit just came out of that, right? And it's yeah. just a it's it's a. I mean, look at all the CEOs of all these companies. They're all <laughs> they're all Asian. It's kind of crazy. Google, Microsoft, Nvidia, TSMC—it's uh, ridiculous. So <laughs> yeah. it's it—you it, know—it comes out of this like cold, cold war, um, yeah, like cold, cold war situation that we find ourselves yeah. in. The yeah. U.S. did fall into a period of decadence after the fall of the Soviet Union, when there was no, when there was no like fully, fully externalized enemy. Uh, that we needed to be, you know, rallying, you know, rallying public support behind, and you know, doing 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 the hard work to actually uh, outcompete them, in some sense. Yeah. So you know, now that China, China and Russia somehow are in the crosshairs at the same time, you know, you know, I'm really cheering for Florida. Their ten million dollar grant to build a chip fab. Yeah, really rooting for you, Florida. Yeah. That's gonna. It's, really yeah, hoping it's, this it's, pulls through. Ten, ten whole million dollars. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That, Good that job, pays guys. for like one, one doorway. In I think this pays that. for one report from McKinsey saying that 10 million wasn't enough. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, but... It's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. I did that. I mean, I don't, uh, I mean, are, are, are people in Arizona and Florida really going to work hard enough to run a chip fab? Like, I don't know about that. And what they're going to have to do is obviously just import more Taiwanese, a.k.a. Chinese people. <laughs> like yeah. Into the, you know, like in, into the into the economy. So that's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's time for some hard decisions to get made. And I'm not I'm not optimistic that uh, this is a country that is capable of making that kind of sacrifice. 
or put in that kind of work to come up with to come out the other side. Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be a huge surprise when you know most of America finds out that oh wait Taiwanese people <laughs> they, they speak Chinese and they like Chinese food and they do Chinese things. <laughs> Maybe they're actually Chinese. Oh, holy Maybe shit. Maybe they're actually Chinese. Oh, huh. the way wait they claim minute. to be China, so it's like the other China. Like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> yeah. So, I, not, not very, but if you leave, like, if you leave, quote, innovation solely to the private sector, you're just going to get, like, you're going to get exactly what we've been, you know, the recycled dog food we've been getting out of Silicon Valley for the last, uh, for the last handful of years. They're not going to, they can't actually, not with the financial constraints that they have. Not, not, not that they're short on cash. It's that their objective is to make money. They are not going to actually be able to take a risk on actual innovation that might yield profit like 20 years down the line. Right. Yeah, and the last. So that incentive just does not exist, and it's not a matter of giving Silicon Valley more money either. Uh, It's simply the incentive is not there the same way that it is with a healthy public sector funding the hard R and D that doesn't need to generate uh, doesn't need to generate profit next year. Yeah, Yeah, the uh, last thought to just like close that out, like just put a close that out, is that uh, you will find some you know libertarian saying, "Hey, what about?" I don't know, like what Bill Gates does for public health through the Gates Foundation or, I don't know, Elon Musk does with SpaceX and pushing the boundaries. And to that, there's two things, right? One is they're still not pushing the boundaries on like fundamental innovation. Maybe they'll fund a lab or two at a university, but that's it's. But the thing is that it's not nearly at the scale that a government budget can muster and with the, and with the mission slash vision that a, you know, robust government agency like DARPA or NASA, or NASA can. So there is a, uh, you know, there is a difference in scale when it comes to public stuff as well, uh, at least in an economy as large as the U.S. Yeah, and I think I must swing back and forth, uh, back and forth, right? Like, there's there's probably like a like a 50 year cycle or something where public and private swing back and forth on innovation but i don't know that's that's just my just, intuition i'm not a historian uh that probably depends entirely on stuff like war <laughs> yeah <laughs> probably more yeah. dependent on that than like any inherent uh, any inherent dy- dynam- dynamism uh right. to the system but we can't stop picking a war we can't seem to stop that so you know at least we can do is get some get some good good stuff out of it, I guess. Least we could do. Yeah, like what drone tech. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Awesome drones now. Like oh, do acrobatics in the air <laughs> and fly around the world. Like yeah. Uh, that's... Uh, yeah. So I mean, but we have such a like a like uh, the the extreme militarization of uh of the last 20 years right so innovation is like i saw that do you, you guys see that uh clip that was circulating on social media that guy who uh uh i think it's the navy that has like jet packs it's a picture sure, of a really? soldier in a jet yeah, pack it's, 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 yeah. the british, it's the british royal navy with their fucking jet packs and he, uh, the guy was like boarding a boat from a from a, a motorboat I think I, I think I saw that clip and it was like next to yeah. a healthcare please meme or something like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, we should, we should yeah. wrap. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, this was a this was a good conversation. I really appreciate you guys uh, taking the time to do this. 
Uh, hope it was helpful to people listening. And uh, if you guys have any questions, send them our way. Um, if you're not in the Discord, get in get in on this. Both of these guys are on the Discord. Um, and Can't we get promised. The Discord is lit. It's worth more than the five bucks a month. <laughs> <laughs> great marketing from our <laughs> see and we didn't we didn't coerce that at all that's a that's a good that's a good um, no no and no so, uh, no coercion was needed for this it's it's a lit discord you all should join this is all voluntary this is all voluntary awesome so yeah i mean if, you, if you're out there thinking of hopping on and you know getting started in a business or something i hope this wasn't necessarily to dis i hope it doesn't come across as trying to dissuade you guys just trying to give a much more like three-dimensional picture of what uh yeah. what life is actually like in the, you know when walking the walk we are so, we are the balance we are the balance yeah so you know if anyone's out there thinking about it come on in come talk to us more than happy to uh to vent <laughs> Yep. All right. So, you know, closing out this episode. Thanks. Thanks, guys, for listening. So, till next time. Thanks, everyone. See you guys. Bye.